Hey players, this is Morgan, part of Murph and Morgan. This is a special episode, episode 50. We're going to recap our first 49 episodes. We're going to take a little time. The first half of that will be just talking about that. Some of the guests we've had, in fact, all of the guests we've had, their stories, what made them special. And then we're going to get into the second half with uh, JP. Javier Pena joins us again, our senior agent in residence, to talk about Pablo's Hippos. So there won't be an outro on this. We're just going to stream this all together, and hopefully you guys will enjoy it. Give us your feedback, and we just want to tell you we appreciate so much the opportunity to bring you the original, the untold stories that now constitute the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. I know you all were expecting our traditional intro music, our Game of Crimes, but man, this this will follow one, so we had to use our Narcos uh, semi-narcos introduction music to this one because this one is going to be fun this one is about well pablo's hippos but we'll get into that in a minute i am morgan wright your host for this next hour and act technically steve only gets to host the first half of this the second half you're a guest dude you're one of our player guests so welcome to the podcast morgan wright i'm here literally with my partner in crime steve murphy and everybody calls me murph this is a good one this is a real good one (laughs) We're going to have some fun, so we're, we're going to riff on this for a little bit towards the end, but as we always do, let's get started with just a tad bit of housekeeping. Go over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars, uh, you know, just, it's five. Five is an easy number to remember. Just go hit those stars, let us know what you think, drop us some comments. Also, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. You're going to want to see the pictures for episode 50s, because Murph is loading up the drive with pictures of everything from rhinos to... Um, uh, hippos to you name it. I mean, they've, we've got everything. This is like a zoo. This is like, uh, the, the, the <laughs> national zoo in, in Columbia, right? So head on over there, our mailing list, uh, merch and stuff. Follow us on social media at game of crimes on Twitter at game of crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, but where you gotta be, where you gotta be, where you gotta be, you gotta be on Patreon, patreon.com slash game of crimes. We just released our case of the month where Murph and I analyze from a different angle, the escape and manhunt for Vicky and uh, Casey white, not married, just happen to have the same last name. And uh, we talk about some things, you know, our, our per- pers- perspective about this. And in fact, Murph doesn't even know this. I dropped uh, a little bit of uh, an episode out there just as a teaser for people to hear what, what our thoughts are about it. So mm-hmm. you guys will hear a teaser episode out there. But if you want to hear the whole thing, go to patreon.com slash game of crimes. We have a ton of content. I mean, we've found that you can't make this shit up has been popular with people. We even got a couple emails, Murph, people going, I love stupid criminals. So do we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this latest uh, episode about the whites, um, as you know, if you're a regular listener, we don't hold back. If, if, uh, a public, if a person in public trust violates their oath, we don't hold back on them. So you'll hear our real opinions about it. Yeah. And um, we have some improvements for how to improve security in the jail. Like, uh, don't let fucking murderers walk out with with just one, you know, a jailer, you know, one deputy accompanying them. That might be a start there. You know, anybody anybody who's on trial, you know, for uh, murder and is serving 75 years already for attempted murder and home invasions, maybe I'd have a couple big guys escorting the big guy around. So anyway. Yeah, might be a little incentive there for him to escape. Yep. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Also, PayPal.com uh, uh, dot me slash Game of Crimes or use our email at paypal.com, game of crimes podcast at gmail.com, whatever makes it easier for you to support the show. Just throw one over the fence if you feel like it. But before we get started, a quick disclaimer, 
This is the show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We do take the story seriously, but... We never take ourselves too serious. And how do we prove we don't take ourselves serious, Murph? Oh, we... (laughs) There's a lot of self-deprecation going on here. (laughs) Well, the fact fact that I'm on the podcast with you shows that I don't take myself seriously either, so... Yeah, where's your Tommy Bahama shirt today there, big boy? This is Tommy Bahama shirt. Oh, I, I should have known that, that pink or that fuchsia, whatever that is, that gives you hey a Hey, man, rock it if you got it. So, <laughs> And speaking of rocking it if you got it, guess what time it is, Murph? What time is it? It's, it's time, time for Small Town, town Police Blotter. All right. Hey, now, this first story technically is not from a small town. It's from Texas. It's from Abilene, Texas. But it comes from Steve King off of our Patreon page. But I just, it's not so much the story. It's that. You'll hear the end of it. So an Abilene man has been accused of walking on the wrong side of the road. Now you're going, who cares about that? (laughs) Well, according to an arrest report, Abilene police responded to a disturbance call in which they witnessed John Davis of Abilene walking on the right side of the roadway instead of the left in which oncoming traffic was coming from behind. So, you know, my first thought, there's there's one more uh, sentence to this. But my first thought is, why would you do that? Well, Murph, I just thought, you know, my thought is, you remember those calls where you went to to where they piss you off and there's nothing else you can do about it, but the minute they can commit a traffic violation, you know, a little, you know, traffic oh, yeah. infraction, it's like, yeah, okay, I can get you for this. I think that's <laughs> what it is here. Now, what does it say about your state of life when you are being held in the Taylor County Jail on a bond of $94 and you can't bond out? <laughs> How did they come up with nine? Why not a 50 or a hundred, you know, a round number, 94, $94 and 12 cents. You can get out. I'm afraid that you, <laughs> if, if you can't afford $94 to get out of jail, uh, it might be time to quit being involved in disturbance calls. But anyway, Hey, this next one also comes from another fan. It comes from our game of crimes, uh, fan group, not the page. We have a page and we have a group. This is our super secret, uh, squirrel group run by our famous and, uh, famous, fabulous mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Love Sandy. Uh, anyway, so this comes from Pikeville, Kentucky, population seventy or population seven thousand two hundred and two. Salute. Salute. So Lewis Ratliff senses this from our Game of Crimes fan group. A Pikeville man was taken to jail Tuesday after a state trooper pulled him over and found him completely naked. Now, oh. Murph, I'm going to let you guess. I, I, uh... What time of day was it? Does it say? Oh, uh, it was night. It was nighttime. Yeah. So, uh, do you think this guy was sober? Now, I'm going to guess that was he doing math? Because you know what we say. Well, it might be. Hang on. So, police had been called about a naked man walking around his truck near the Pike County Airport. When officers went to check it, they saw the man swerving as he drove away. Of course, the trooper pulled over the man, identified as 41-year-old Wesley Dean Lawson, and found him in the car naked trying to stretch a shirt over himself as the officer approached the car. Lawson, Lee, Lawson explained that he was naked because he had been having sex with the woman and she must have taken his pants. But the police were unable to locate any woman. So, but Steve, to your point, guess what they spotted on his nose? Powder residue. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and he failed to... I didn't want to touch that one. And he failed a subsequent field sobriety test. So shock of shocks, he was arrested for DUI and indecent exposure. Now, I do have one just quick bone to pick with this. He was not indecently exposed until the trooper made him get out of the car. It's like Ron White, the comedian, said one time, he says, I wasn't drunk in public. I was drunk in private. They threw me into public. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. All right, Murph. Now, 
you know, the one thing, too, about getting married, you know, one of the things that makes marriage work right is having common interests, you know, common bonds. You want it to be different, but you got to yeah. share something in common, right? Yeah. So uh, I want to announce the the uh, marriage of Cole Ray Hogner, 21, of uh, Tahlequah and Raina K. Eagle, 18, also of Tahlequah. They were, sh they were just recently married. And then in the same section of the paper under felonies, Cole Hogner was charged with possession of a credit card belonging to another, and under misdemeanors, Raina K. Engel was charged with unauthorized use of a credit card. I mean, the family that steals together stays together. <laughs> Keep it in the family, buddy. <laughs> Keep it in the family. <laughs> All right. What a wonderful couple. That's, that's like uh, Bonnie and Clyde to a lesser degree. Uh, I wouldn't give him. They weren't. The, they're not. They're not the high IQ version of Bonnie and Clyde. So. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, well, All right. Hey, so we kind of blazed through that because we wanted to spend a little time kind of setting this next part up because this is going to be fun. Uh, you know, this was, we had talked about what we kind of, you know, this is our 50th episode, guys. So first of all, we want to thank everybody for hanging in mm -hmm. with us. Um, we think we've done reasonably well in terms of downloads and, you know, how we've grown the audience and everything and your comments really help us out. And we just thought, you know, hey, we would kind of bring back uh, somebody who was on episode one and that's our senior agent in residence. That's Javier Pena. And uh, we would talk about something a lot of people don't know about. I mean, some people have heard about it. They've done a couple specials on it because, Murph, you were on one of the specials, Animal Planet. Yeah, we but, both were. Uh, yeah. Um, no, we weren't. You and JP were. I wasn't on that special. That's what I meant. Keep <laughs> well, up. that's not Keep what you said. Here. Yeah, okay. But, <laughs> uh, but it's Pablo's Hippos. You know, and everybody thinks at first, oh, that's cute because if you watch, I think it's uh, episode five of season one, I think of Narcos Mexico or whatever, that's there, you know, that's when Pablo, so Narcos Mexico goes back and shows the rise of Pablo too, in addition to the other parts of the cartel. And this obviously was about Kiki Camarena. Uh, but it shows, it shows the scene where Pablo, you look over there and there's Wagner Mora playing Pablo, but there's one of his hippos there. Mm -hmm. And so people think that these hippos are just, oh, they're cute. We see them in the zoos, you know, you watch them on uh, Animal Planet or you see some National Geographic special. But, you know, hippos were never, ever intended to be in South America. They can't and, swim that far for one thing. And they're not intended to be pets. These oh, are no. some of the most dangerous, most aggressive animals out there. They're not meat eaters, which you're going to find out. I'm sorry to, to give that little tidbit away, but uh, they are territorial. They're very protective of their young and they don't like to be screwed with. No, they don't. So, hey, but, you know, kind of a quick retrospective before we get into this, because uh, this is our 50th episode. And, you know, Steve, it got me thinking. We started going back over some of the people that we've talked to. And uh, I think it's just amazing. I mean, we have mixed stories uh, in between of people, famous stories, things you've heard about, p things you've never heard about before. But when you hear the story, you're going, oh, my God, just how just how fantastic is that? And so, you know, I was just looking back, and of course, obviously, we kicked off with you and JP, season one, or I mean, episode one, uh, and we did a two-hour thing. And obviously, on Patreon, we have we go in depth, mm -hmm. twelve mm -hmm. episodes, and we find out stuff nobody know. They've you guys don't even talk about in your worldwide tour. That's right, uh, and your show. But you know what else? We're going to find out something in episode 50 I've never heard before, <laughs> and it's uh, Finkanopolis, and it's and only JP would be the one to find this. That's all I can say. If there's anybody to find it, it's JP. It's only appropriate that he brought this up. It, would, it just would not have the same impact if I had mentioned it. Oh, God, no. And if you want to know what it is, stay tuned. That's right. I think it's about halfway through the episode. We'll, we'll, uh, mm. we'll see, but I got to looking at it, and then you know what? 
I think we got the last uh, interview with George Young, Pablo's business yes. partner, before he passed away. So I think we that did. was the last podcast interview. Um, and then, you know, we had some great people like Pam Barnum. I mean, kick-ass Canadian cop, A. Anybody who dives out of a car at 25 miles an hour before she gets whacked, you know, by the Hells Angels, uh, mm-hmm. got to vote in my, you know, vote in my book. Or doesn't smack her partner for puking in her hair. <laughs> that's, that's nasty. And then, you know what? One of our first two-part episode was Lou Velozzi. And that was, I'll tell you, the other thing, too, we were very grateful about, too, is we talked about Lou. He had been trying to get his book published. He had talked to you and then mm-hmm. miraculously he appears on this. How many offers did he say he got? I can't remember, like 10 No or less 12? than 10 was his wording. No less than 10 offers from producers to do something with his story. And not only did they go on to do something with the story, his book is published, Storefront, uh, you know, about the undercover operations he did as an ATF agent. But they've also turned this into a little documentary. They put it out at mm-hmm. a couple film festivals. And we will be seeing Lou at the Southern California Game Conference. Yep. And just – and uh, this hasn't been published anywhere. So if you're listening to us, you're getting exclusive here. You'll get the first here on this. Javier and I are actually working with him and uh, our talent agent and a production company on a potential new TV series. So we don't have contracts yet, but uh, just to tease you a little bit that uh, this is how the brotherhood of law enforcement comes together and looks out for each other. So we'll see what happens with this. Well, that's news to me too, pal. Thanks. I thought I told you about it. <laughs> you tell me a lot of things. I mean, like I, what I you had for people, dinner. <laughs> I only tell people what, you know, that need to know. Sorry. Need to know. I get it. Need to know, <laughs> right to know. Okay. We've been down that road. Then, then yeah. we went on to uh, Kevin Stevens, your partner. Oh, and, yeah. uh, what a what a great story. And, you know, the thing about that was you and him had never talked about that story for, what, like 18 years, 20 years? Yeah, that happened in 1989. And we had, I, it's hard, I couldn't even believe it when I realized it, that we never compared notes. We never discussed it with each other other than his health, how you doing now, you know, what can I do to help you out here and that kind of thing. But uh, it was, and it was amazing to hear the way, the different ways that we remember things that happened that day. So it was pretty neat. Yeah. And time, you know, it's one of those things too, is like, um, that, that's something that could have ruined Kevin's life, but he came back from it. He learned to shoot differently. Oh yeah. I mean, this is somebody who should never have come back to work, but he did, you know, he could have gone on disability, but he, no, the dude rocked it and came back. Then we well, moved know, on. Well, we've had, a, we've had a lot of guests that have been shot oh, yeah. and wounded in the line of duty and, and every story is amazing to listen to the perseverance, the will to live how they didn't let the bad guys get them down. <clears throat> and it was the same thing with Kevin, man. He, there's no way he was going to let those guys defeat him. Well, he was pissed. The, the most dangerous thing that happened to Kevin was you had to post guards at the hospital because he had two different girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> it was. And, and never the true. twain shall meet. <laughs> so then, then we moved on to, uh, and look, folks, some of the, the folks we talked to, they have made big movies about. So Jeff Moore was mm-hmm. the was basic Bradley Cooper paid, played him, not his exact name, but played him in the movie The Mule about Leo Sharp, the Sinaloa cartel's oldest trafficker. And what a what a great humble guy that was. Just a nice, soft-spoken. And I love his self-deprecating humor because he talked about, yeah, we, we seized, a, I think it was like 15 kilos of cocaine. He said, that's it. We've put an end to drug trafficking <laughs> in Detroit. It is over. <laughs> hey, and if you remember too, we posted the pictures of him. We got a lot of positive comments from the lady listeners out there. <laughs> Well, him and Lou, too, yeah. Put up some more of those hunks up there, you know, the yeah. eye candy. Yeah, true. But man, what a great guy, too. And then and then uh, I'll tell you, uh, this is a buddy of mine, and what a story he had. Mike Neal about the West Memphis, two West Memphis officers that were killed by the two sovereign citizens and the shootout he got into. 
And you know, Steve, to this day, I'm surprised they haven't made a movie about that or done a book about that. And I've talked to Mike about that. I said, man, you gotta, you gotta make a, gotta make a movie, gotta make a book. That, yeah. that this is something that just screams for telling the story, the kind of heroism, knowing that, hey, you're running your car into them at 50, 60 miles an hour. You're shooting through your windshield. Um, you know, these guys have just shot and killed two officers. They've shot and wounded two more. Yep. And now you're in the middle of a Walmart parking lot. I mean, what a story. And it was all on videotape. That's the cool. Well, to us, it's a cool thing. To a lot of people, you don't want to watch that. But you could see exactly what happened that day. Yeah. Man, so that was stuff too. And then we launched Patreon on uh, August 1st. So that's when we did our official launch. And then we got into, Stephen, I just sent you an email this morning. We got an email from one of our players. Um, I won't mm -hmm. use her name because um, I didn't ask her if we could, but she just sent an email, said, hey, I heard of you because of Jim, James and Jimmy, you know, of Small mm -hmm. Town Murders, where we launched with. And then uh, she says she was watching this documentary and there's this guy named Andrew Hogan, who's talking about capturing El Chapo. And I'm going, <laughs> well, okay. So that was the first capture and it didn't stick because he escaped. So the real story, if you want to hear the real story, that was episode nine, Paul Crane and Abe Perez. These guys are the real deal. And just like you and uh, JP did, and you talked about, they gave credit to the real heroes there. And those were the Mexican Marines. Those were the guys right. who were the tip of the spear that were out engaging every single day you know, going after the most dangerous people. And I'll tell you, part of that episode too, still pisses me off to today. Uh, I know he tries to be in the middle of everything, but fucking Sean Penn ruined the yeah. operation. Oh yeah. Yeah. They had to postpone everything because of him and he probably doesn't even know it, but that's the idea of it. You're in there, you're screwing up things, costing people their lives because you think that you're self-important and can get involved and solve a problem that nobody else can solve. I mean, you got to know what lane you're in. You're a freaking actor. You pretend to be somebody else. You read lines written by somebody else to pretend to be somebody you're not. Yeah. And, you know, I always, like I said, this is my one pet peeve, but you get all of these people who have certain social issues they're against, but yet they will take money to play actors who represent the polar opposite of what they believe. If you really believe what you believe, mm -hmm. then don't take the money and don't do the acting. But I digress. Let's not get uh, too off of money. Right. But you talk about a hell of an episode and Paul Crane, when they start talking about the shootout they got got into and the helicopters that were there and the trucks, I mean, I, I thought I was watching a recap of World War II, the storming the beaches at Normandy, <laughs> <know>. man. <laughs> well, you know, and, and just back to Hogan, I mean, there actually was a DEA agent involved in the actual capture with the Mexican Marines when they got Chapo, but he's still on the job. He's humble. Uh, Javier and I have actually spoken to him personally and gotten firsthand account of what really happened that day. And hopefully he's still got a number of years to go before he retires. But when he retires and hopefully Game of Crimes will still be going, you know, then and, and we'll bring him on the show and you'll hear from him. But that's years down the road. Yeah. And he didn't he didn't punch out to go grab a little bit of glory, glory and write a book to claim credit right. for doing everything. Right. Absolutely. We could do a whole episode on that. But anyway, we're just kind of recapping. And then a great one, too. We always wanted to, you know, one of the things compliments we've gotten from people and we're proud of it, too, is we want we showcase everybody. Look, our our belief is if you wear the badge, we don't care what race, color, sex, gender or it doesn't matter to us. If you wear the badge right. and you bleed blue, you got a you got a spot on this show to tell your story. And Michelle Linhart was a fabulous story. Had she not poofed her hair to reach 5'4", <laughs> this story may have never happened. Hey, if she hadn't poofed her hair, Javier and I probably, well, I wouldn't have been promoted to the SES ranks of DEA because she's the one that bumped me up there. You know, we'd, you hear in the mafia when they become a member of the mafia, they become a made man or a made, well, they don't make women, but they, a made man. That's, that's what we say in DEA. Michelle's the one responsible for making me in DEA. 
Yeah, brings you in for the ceremony in velour jumpsuits in a hotel room that we'll talk about <laughs> later with Steve Matelski. But that's a little bit farther down the line. So Michelle mm-hmm. Linhart and then two of my other buddies uh, that I'd worked with way in the past, uh, Alan Graham or Alan uh, Thomas and Graham Burridge uh, were with New Scotland Yard, the Counterterrorism Command, SO15. And we talked with him. I love talking to the British, uh, you know, and now Graham is Welsh, but he's got such a great sense of humor. And Alan, uh, they talk about that day. Alan was there when Lord Mountbatten was killed by the IRA, uh, blown up in his boat. You know, they talk about their how many bombings they'd respond to. And then we talk about uh, the 7705 train bombings mm-hmm. and just his knowledge of that and what him and Graham had to do and how important at that time phones and computer were and the amount of time they spent going through CCTV recordings looking for these bombers only to find out that guess what? They thought that they were done with this. They had to stop another plot two weeks later that fortunately because of bad engineering mm-hmm. didn't work. So, I mean, what, what, a gr- what a great group of guys. And that's the thing. We're, you know, we're trying to take this international as well as national. I'm just looking at our, our statistics here. 17% of our listeners are international. So that's why we try to bring in law enforcement from other parts of the world here. Yeah. And uh, look, Australia, you're, you got to You got to bump it up. You're doing good. I think you're ahead of uh, Canada now. They are. They are. And, and the Canadians were trying to bump it up higher because they were number two. Now they're number four. Yeah. Uh, hey, hey, you're falling down on the job there, eh? <laughs> well, we're going to have to get Steve and Pam and a bunch of guys up there and uh, one of our other guys we'll talk about here in a minute. But then we go from proper British accents to Dominic Polifron, who dropped an F-bomb every third word. <laughs> but, man, anybody who can take down Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman, oh. and just hear his story. And not only that, but see— I think one of the things we do here that nobody else does, a lot of people just want to hear the story. Just just, just give me the meat of the sandwich, and nobody understands. we got to set context. Right. Learning about – I had no idea Dominic Polifrone played football in Nebraska. Yeah, with that of accent. All, <laughs> hey, how you guys doing? <laughs> what would you say there, son? <laughs> you ain't from around here, are you, boy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You sure got a pretty mouth, though. But you know what? If somebody was going to be called Iceman in that, it should have been Dominic because he's got ice in his veins to go work undercover against those type of mass murderers out there. Holy cow. Well, and and the way he was using, um, uh, you know, the way he was using poisons and everything else to do stuff, just squirt it on things and, mm-hmm. you know, blow it in people's faces. It's like n- nobody was looking for this stuff. So it's right. like he was so concerned. But yeah, but but he also worked across the whole mafia family, took down, I think, 50, 60 people, worked across all five families. I mean, just I mean, you know, again, you, you sit back and you want to salute guys like this for having cojones of stone to do stuff. You're not like kidding. This. You're not kidding. And then this was uh, this was a very emotional episode for a couple of reasons. We had Dave Reichert on. He was the lead investigator for the Green River Killer, that piece of shit, yeah. um, who killed – well, now it's up to, I think, 51 that they've confirmed that he's killed. And he's mm-hmm. saying that he killed more than that. But um, Dave uh, – you know, when you do the research, Dave got hate mail from people and stuff. And it's like, Steve, you guys get hate mail. Right. And you and JP, uh, you know, unbelievably you guys get hate mail. I don't know why anybody would hate the fact is that you – took down a, a mass, you know, murdering a narco-terrorist. But there are some people out there who have this fantasy. And yep. But let me tell you, but somebody who did this, basically, for it took him 20 years, 20 years, starting as a detective, working his way up, uh, and then going to run for sheriff. And then as he, would, as he became sheriff, he was able to reinvigorate the investigation. And a little bit of DNA, a little bit of luck from when they took a swab from this guy early on. I don't want to say names of these 
pieces of shit either. I don't give them any airtime. So right. he's a piece of shit. Absolutely. Um, it was that swab that led to uh, the DNA. And just to hear his story, and then we did a, a, a Facebook Live with him too. And I thought that was just and another another humble guy, guy who's very family oriented and just believes in what he's doing. Just a true patriot. Absolutely, and he was. If I'm not mistaken, he was our longest interview, right? I mean, it was oh. that was so in depth, and his career afterwards is just unbelievable. I said, episode. If you're into serial murders, you need to listen to that episode. And you know what? And that's another hallmark of what we do. We talk to the people who actually did the case, not people who read about it. There's right. people who read the book and people who wrote the book. And many of our guests also have written books, and we have those all on our webpage, uh, Game of Crimes. And then uh, we get into one of our first legitimate bad guys. Uh, Dominic could have been a bad guy, but fortunately he was a good guy, but he played a good bad guy. <laughs> but our first true you know, person who operated on the other side of the law was Ken Rijok, the laundry man. Well, that was after George Jung. He was our first. Oh, that's true, Ken too. In. Yeah. Uh, well, he's the first one that's still alive after we interviewed him. True. <laughs> Not that we had anything to do with that. Rest Wait, in peace, that, George. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. I Oof. forgot about Yeah, but Ken Rijok. And you hear about, again, it's all about context. Here's a guy who went to the dark side, uh, started laundering money for drug traffickers and everything else. But the guy was a Vietnam veteran, served our country, was in combat, served, you know, with distinction and honor, and yet through a series of circumstances, getting uh, uh, ex access to drugs, cocaine, things like that, started his downward spiral. But then guess what? Mm -hmm. It's like it's like Star Wars. It's the hero's journey. It's a story of redemption. Ken comes back, and now he's working with law enforcement, working with countries and companies to show them how to detect laundry or money laundering and fraud and things like that. So now he's serving the public instead of uh, stiffing the public. Right. It was it was so interesting, too, because this was in the infancy stages of, of cocaine exploding in the United States. And to hear how simple it was, you just put money in a bag, fly down to the islands, open up a bank account, make some connections, fly back. Pretty Those simple. were the good old days. <laughs> if you're a money launderer or a drug trafficker. <laughs> That's right. And then this was interesting, too, because we're represented by United Talent Agents. And uh, so is this next guy. And they reached out to us. He is well-known, internationally <laughs> well-known wrote a book, and he wanted to come on our podcast to talk about it, and we actually did his launch party for his book. You know, we, we talked about his book, and then it launched the next day, but it's James Murr Murray. You guys might know him as the star of Impractical Jokers yep. and the movie, too, as well, and his book was, I mean, again, one of those things, you read that, and it's like there's a couple moments in there, you go, motherfucker, how, <laughs> why did you do that? And so it was, it was good. We had a good time with Murray. He had a good sense of humor, too, as you would expect from a comedian. He did. And, and that book, I tell you, because I'm not going to tell you much about the book, but there were a couple of times when I had to put it down because it was infuriating what was going on. But it's a great suspenseful book. Take a look at it. It is. And then uh, another friend of mine, we got to talk again. We talk about the real deal, the Boston Marathon bombing. Ed Davis was the commissioner of the Boston police when that went on. They made Patriots Day about it. Mark Wahlberg, John Goodman, you know, played Ed Davis in that. Although I thought John Goodman's uh, Boston accent sucked. Um, Mark Wahlberg <laughs> was the one who had the real – I mean, he's from that area. He had the real Boston accent. He played – it was so authentic. And that was actually one of our uh, live stream reviews on Patreon was uh, Patriot's Day. Yep. Great movie. Great movie. Love. I, I actually really like Mark Wahlberg as an actor. I think he does a fantastic job. And what he does in private, in his private life to support – uh, law enforcement, uh, as as it deals with uh, kids getting involved with drugs and so forth, 
is fantastic. I mean, check him out and find out what he's doing. He's doing some very admirable things. Oh, absolutely. And, and he's a huge supporter of Tunnels to Towers. He supports law enforcement. He supports the military. He's like Gary Sinise and the Lieutenant Dan Band, you know, just yep. people who just give and give and give and do not expect anything in return. So yep. what a great guy. Fantastic. And then, Steve, uh, this was one that you said, and she was a hoot. Sherry Oz, <laughs> the special agent in charge of DEA, basically in Arizona, out, out of the Phoenix uh, field office. And her sense of humor and the way, that, again, it's just self-deprecating, talking about, you know, between the guy's legs. You have to listen to the episode to understand what we're talking about. Yep. She is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yep. <laughs> you know, with the, with the last name like Oz, you've got to have a sense of humor, I would think. <laughs> it was, she was one of the best interviews we had on there. We appreciate Sherry coming on. And we've stayed in touch uh, since then on, on some other projects, so it's all good. Yeah, and you know, but again, it's like one of those things, the way the world works. Right before we aired the episode, Steve— um, right. Yeah. We had the shooting down there. And in fact, um, one of your colleagues had the name added to the wall this year, along with the task force officer. Yeah. It was, it's just very, very sad. Uh, it was poor timing. Uh, you know, any, any time a police officer is killed, it's poor timing. But um, hearts go out to him and our, well, not him, but his family and the, and the DEA family. Yeah. Then... We go on to somebody I got introduced to through a mutual friend of mine. This friend of mine, Mitch Cunningham, was the lead hostage negotiator for the Montgomery County Police Department and was there during the D.C. sniper case, you know, one year after 9-11. Like, 9-11 wasn't bad enough. Now we get a sniper going through the region. Well, he introduced us then into somebody who was there on the ground, was on the SWAT team, Jeff Nice. And again, another somebody who has battled uh, disease battled uh, an affliction that could have taken his life, mm-hmm. and uh, and just to hear how humble this guy is, he wrote a book, "Failure's Not an Option," and talked. To, it's one thing to hear about it, but it's another thing to see it first, you know, first person point of view as they take down the DC snipers. I mean, just the tempo they had to maintain for that long, Steve, is just incredible. Yeah, and <clears throat> excuse me, but once again, the perseverance, the expertise, and the. Uh, experience and joining forces. You had multiple agencies there, which typically is uh, competitive, uh, but they, everybody was able to lay their badges aside and work together, which is that's what the successful conclusion resulted from in this investigation. Yeah. You know, badges, we don't need no stinking badges <laughs> and the people don't know the real origin of that. So here's a quick trivia. People think it comes from Blazing Saddles. No, it does not. It comes from Humphrey Bogart in the movie Tre- Treasure of the Sierra Madre. That's where it was originally said. Anyway, I digress. So we go from All there right. to somebody, the hardest name we've ever had to try to pronounce and we couldn't, <laughs> Rob Zacharachius or Zacharach. I can't pronounce his name, Zara Hedshaheski. What is it? I think the, I think the only I can't pronounce it either. I think the only people who can are him and his family. <laughs> so we call we call him Rob Zach. It's Rob Zach. We call him Zach. And we talked about the Merchant of Death, Victor Boot, and they made the movie uh, Lord of War. Uh, <laughs> Yuri Orloff played by Nicolas Cage. I thought that was the bigger crime. Um, his portrayal <laughs> anyway, but again, I digress, but no, but, but here's another guy too. You, you talk about Steve, like working hard and this, this started off as a hold my beer moment. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, uh, in fact, the one I just <laughs> sent you today for a potential yeah. future interview, you'll see that same person, uh, uh, Juan Zarati on that as we talk about, it. but DEA was challenged by the national security advisory council. Hey, you guys think you're hot shit. What have you ever heard of this guy named Victor Boot? You think you can take him down? And our chief of operations at the time, Mike Braun, looked over at one agent and they shook their head yes and said, we sure can. And they did. 
And just to put this in perspective, this just wasn't some just side bet. This guy was able to fly below the radar because it's called low-intensity conflict. He had been funding low-intensity conflict in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa and a lot of those areas. One UN report attributed over 6 million deaths to the arms supplied by Victor Boot. <clears throat> Unbelievable. Unfrickin' believable. So, so you I think mean, he ought to be arrested? I think, think so. <laughs> hey, just go back uh, to Jeff real quick. We forgot to mention Aaron Turner on there. From oh, the, uh, the help to break into the uh, the laptop that the snipers were using. Oh, yeah, yeah. We forgot we did an embed episode. That's right. That was our special embedded <laughs> episode. And uh, Aaron, uh, super geek extraordinaire, who, by the way, has a really successful uh, – he he started a company. It was only like a year and a half old, and then they sold it, and Aaron uh, no longer has to work if he doesn't want to. <laughs> well, he has for a couple of years, but we're, and actually he and I are doing some things together as well, so it's uh, we'll see where that goes. Good and Aaron fella. Turner was the one that taught you how to play Halo on Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> He's the one to kick my ass, and then we brought in some 15-year-old kids who kicked his butt, so... <laughs> If you wanted to know how your taxpayer dollars are being spent in the Special Operations Division of DEA, look no farther than Xbox and Halo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I apologize to that, Aaron. Uh, you know, uh, I was going to ask you for a grant, but apparently I can't do that now, so I apologize very much. Oh, so. well. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> hey, and then we go from uh, Rob Zach. We go to uh, somebody who we are now doing an extended uh, Patreon episode with, with him and Dave Mitchell, but it's our buddy. Chris the Fox Feistel. I mean, you when go. you saw the hair he had and the <laughs> Miami Vice look he had, this dude, and I'll tell you what, between him and a couple others, just like JP, like you talked about, encyclopedia uh, knowledge, you know, just what he remembers and the details. Um, just we, we talked about the, the takedown of the Cali cartel, which led us then to doing an extended version of the real DEA Narcos, talking about the real DEA Narcos Cali edition with him and Dave Mitchell, his partner, who they made season three of Narcos about. Right. His recall, and I always say this about Javier, Javier has a brain like an encyclopedia. It's amazing. His recall is amazing. And Chris is, is as good as Javier, if not better. I mean, he remembers very minute, specific details, locations, dates, times. It was a hell of an interview. And the location of certain rooms at Finkanapolis. So Javier does. <laughs> <laughs> you have to listen to find out what we're talking about. You have to listen to find out. Well, look, then we went on to our next Canadian, and this guy was fun, Steve Matelski. Yeah. Um, he, he, he's doing what he loves right now. He's teaching kids. But um, he did some badass stuff. And if there's somebody else who has an encyclopedic knowledge yeah. of something, it's Steve. And I thought Canadians were nice. I had no idea how entrenched the mob was in Canada. <laughs> I was shocked also, but what's really shocking is when they held, held the ceremony <laughs> to make a, a, a criminal a made a man made in man. the mafia. It's not what you think. It's not what you might have seen on TV. It's a couple of allure suits, <laughs> that Super 8 motel in a room with an unmade bed going, hey, you guys doing good? Okay, raise your right hand. I so-and-so agree to be a criminal. Okay, we're done. Let's, let's, go, to let's go to the buffet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's head out to the buffet. Oh, oh my God. Funny. That was, but Steve, and Steven has also uh, helped us get one of our next guests that will be coming up later. We'll tell you about uh, yeah. when we get there. But uh, Steve, Steve, great guy. And uh, we just, uh, he's written a book too, uh, and which you happen to be featured in. Although yeah. it wasn't technically undercover, he was pandering to you because he wanted to be on our podcast. I know what it was, Steve. <laughs> I told him up front, I did very little undercover, but uh, it worked. So, and we've stayed in touch. He's, he's become a real good friend. 
And now the next one, though, this is a story, if you want to talk about, I think out of all the stories we have, somebody who's overcome, I think, the biggest odds of survival, uh, it's Joe Pearsanti. Yep, absolutely. A DE agent who was, uh, have heard pretty much his whole life has been a bodybuilder, former Detroit police officer before DEA, uh, volunteered to be on one of our teams called the Fast Teams and was deployed to Afghanistan where he had a very, very, very bad and life-changing experience. This guy was shot yeah. in the head. And they thought I mean, he was dead. Yeah. He's blind now, but the man persevered. He came on. He finished his career with DEA. He had to work in a little bit of a different capacity, but maintained his, his special agent status. Uh, is now out doing motivational speaking. He goes to hospitals with uh, wounded soldiers and relates to them. And on top of that, recently, within the less than the past year, one in his age group, the World uh uh, bodybuilding championship, which made him a lifetime member of this organization. I mean, this guy's got muscles on top of his muscles on top of his muscles. This, and his personality is fantastic. He's e so easy to get along with. Really, really nice guy. And and you know what, too? You want muscles like that when you saw the how heavy of a weapon he was carrying in Afghanistan. So you, oh you give gosh. those to the big guys, not the little guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, stand-up guy. So, uh, And yeah. he's now doing motivational speaking. Uh, so if you know anybody that's looking for speakers, contact us. We'll put you in touch with Joe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is a story you got to hear. Well, then this one was a fun one, too. <laughs> yeah. This was a guy who, if we had kept talking, we could have talked for 12 hours easily because Luis Navia, you wanted to, this is why it's so important to set context, not just get into the story. Well, tell us about the 26 tons of cocaine. No, listen to this guy talk about <laughs> growing up in Cuba, Fidel Castro, Meyer Lansky. You know, mm -hmm. going to the best. This guy had everything given to him. And then why did he get involved in becoming one of the largest drug traffickers in the world? And and not only worked in that business for 25 years, survived, survived. a kidnapping by a cartel leader, the North Valley Cartel in Colombia, who was known for never releasing anybody, that he murdered everybody who got kidnapped. And, Rascuño. And Yep, and Luis survived that, which that, and I was shocked when I heard that. I, I, to my knowledge, he's the only person that ever walked away from one of those. I thought he was about to be fed to the alligators, too. Well, that was down in Mexico. Yep, <laughs> he was. So he survived he's, twice, alligators <laughs> and rascuño. He's like a cat with nine lives, I guess. Yeah, and he got, you know, he did his time in prison and he got out. And now he's a legitimate businessman. But guess what? He still stays in touch with the guys who arrested him. They go out and they have lunch, and that's be a future episode we talk about. Yep. Yep. In fact, I, they got together recently and, and I think Javier and I were traveling and I missed the phone call with them, but I saw pictures later where they'd gone out and had lunch together over in Tampa. <laughs> well, you know, and then we go from there again, this is another one of those stories of somebody who probably shouldn't survived, but, oh, absolutely. but did, you know, Alex Collins and we're going to, we're going to run into Alex, I think at the gang conference too, but, um, mm -hmm. San Bernardino, um, County, um, Chris, I don't want to mention this piece of shit. This was a guy was we thought was honorable, served his country, wanted to become an LAPD officer, and then thinks he's slighted and he goes rogue and he starts killing people. And yeah. one of the people killed was Alex's partner. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you, Steve, the thing, this episode, the one thing that pissed me off more than anything else, and like you and I said at the beginning, we call it out. It's like with this Vicky and Casey White, just because you wear a badge doesn't mean you get a free pass. You got to be doing the righteous thing. Right. And for those two officers, and I, won't, I don't even want to mention their departments, but where they left him and his partner in the middle of the road and hid behind a car instead mm -hmm. of dragging them to safety, providing you could, you could lay down covering fire, 
grab those people. Well, it was too heavy. And then they get fucking awards for it. To this yeah. day, still pisses me off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got to look out for each other. And, and I mean, listen to the episode. You'll find out exactly what we're talking about. It's, it's a little bit of a long story, but I think you'll have the same reaction we have. Uh, 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 yeah. And I still, it's still, I, I right now I even kind of feel like goosebumps coming because it just, something like that just really pisses you off. But then we right. go episode 25. This was a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he ended up being part of a special uh, live stream review we did of the greatest Christmas movie ever made. Yes, Die Hard. Rick Massa from LAPD was on the ground. When you see this, the story about the North Hollywood shootout with those two uh, dudes who had been robbing left and right armored cars and they moved to Bank of America and were robbing those things, as luck would have it, two officers driving by see them walking into the bank. These are what they called the takeover bandits. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would come in and take over, and they were heavily armed. And yet three SWAT officers tra- dressed in shorts, they were out training and stuff. These guys hightail it down to the area. They get involved in the action, and they help take out both of these heavily armed guys. And, uh, I mean, just what a fantastic story and what a great guy. And, by the way, Rick was trained as a chef by Wolfgang Puck. <laughs> uh, that's, that is pretty cool. I mean, you got to listen to that because <clears throat> that's the last— well, you know, how can I say the last thing we ever thought we'd be doing after DEA is the Netflix story and all the stuff that we're doing now. But that's true. The last thing I would ever think I was doing is working with a professional chef and winning awards for my my meals that I'm preparing. Holy cow, that was fantastic. Uh, so and then we did then we did in December, we did uh, we just we didn't do a vote. We just said, look, we're reviewing Die Hard, the greatest Christmas movie ever made. And we got expert analysis from LAPD SWAT themselves, Rick Massa, and we determined nobody in LAPD SWAT says, maintain your reconnoiter. (laughs) That's hilarious. Doesn't happen. (laughs) Now, this next one, too, I'm extremely proud because we will also see her down at the Southern California Gang Conference, Claudia Polinar. Her and her partner were shot, ambushed. Right. During the whole uh, uprising, during the whole COVID stuff, uh, all of the unrest that was going on during the country during that time, uh, cops were literally under attack. And her and her partner are sitting, waiting. uh, uh, They were doing transit uh, protection and stuff for the L.A. uh, County Sheriff and ambushed. And she is shot through the face. But guess what? She takes care of her partner. Leave nobody behind. She's on. You can see on video her putting the tourniquet on her partner, who's also severely wounded. She cares about him before she takes care of herself. And you want to talk about just, I mean, uh, just I'm very proud to see people like this. Um, Her training kicked in. She was still kind of a rookie. She did not have that much experience. But the training kicked in. She saved her life. She saved her partner's life. You know, and I've started following her on social media, and it's it's great to see what she's doing. Um, You know, in her interview, you'll hear what her future plans are because she's not backing down. Nope. I mean, she was wounded in the line of duty, and she's still ready to jump right back in the fight. So really excited that we're going to have the opportunity to meet her in person. And speaking of strong females, this next one, um, she doesn't mince words. Cheryl Nietzsche, Cheryl O'Connor, um, somebody I met down here. She was a Richmond police officer who was also, and we didn't mean for these episodes to go back to back like this because uh, Claudia was shot through the face. Cheryl was thought th- shot through the face, ambushed by somebody who had already killed. Several people. Piece of trash. Yeah, piece of, uh, you know, and just, and just what she endured, what she did, how she came back from it, her, her attitude even to this day, because her and I stay in touch. I see what's going on down there. 
And uh, I mean, she is I, I, just no words to describe a lot of people back in the end. When she came on, there were very few women in law enforcement and the ones that were weren't treated very well, in my opinion, you know. But, Absolutely. She's just a tough lady. I mean, she's oh, from the Boston it. suburbs. She doesn't, she calls She'll kick your ass. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't make her mad. <laughs> uh, no, I don't want to make her mad. And this was great too, because we kind of, it was, it was, um, this was, uh, I think uh woman's month. And we kind of did all of these during woman's month. Cause we go from Cheryl, who is a great story to Trisha Cannon, a Georgia Bureau of investigation agent. That's Georgia, J O J A Georgia yep. Bureau of investigation. And, her, this is one, Steve, where everybody's committed, but she, I think, took it to another level. Her commitment to solving crime, the case that she worked, the way that she made the promise to that young girl who was a victim of sex trafficking, that I'm going to be there for you. Three years, three years investigating this case to make sure that they came up with the people who were involved in this. You know, thousands of hours, all these different accounts, back page, you know, um, uh, phones, messages, emails, tracking down the person. And she was persistent, and she she was true to her words. She was there for that victim every step of the way. She was phenomenal. Phen- I mean, just uh, you can't. That's that's the dedication to serving the public. Uh, what a great example she set for everybody. Oh, uh, I just it makes it makes me proud. I'm I'm humbled to think that we have these people on our podcast because I'm going. Uh, you know, it's like sitting around a bar, and it's like you start telling your stories. It's like I got nothing. You you talk to these people, and pretty soon you go. I got nothing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and Not compared it, but to it's, what they've done. Yeah, it's an honor. Um, yep. Well, this next one, too, this is probably one of the most uh, emotional stories we've told, too, and it's a friend of yours. Oh. Um, so I'll let you tee that one up. Sherry Foster, uh, I love her like a sister. Uh, know her entire family very well. Javier and I both do. Um, I've known Sherry for a long, long time. She started as a local cop in Georgia, then she went to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and then she became a DE agent. No, that's Georgia. Georgia. Yeah, what you said. Georgia yeah. Bureau of Investigation. Speaks fluent Spanish, was stationed in, uh, was it Bolivia or Peru? I think in Peru for a while, and then eventually got stationed in Colombia. But when she tells her story, I had no idea of her background, how she grew up. And it just, my heart just broke for her. I mean, if you know this lady, she's one of the most energetic, most upbeat people you'll ever meet. Meet, And you talk about somebody that didn't let her circumstances bring her down, that overcame the circumstances and made herself a huge success. And now what she's doing now to help battered women through the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District of Georgia, which is Atlanta, it's amazing. It's nothing short of amazing. I just have immense, I, I loved her to start with, and now I have, the, I have the utmost respect for Sherry Foster. Just fantastic. And her tagline was how to be a, be a victor, not a victim, you know? Yeah. And, and the other thing too, Sherry's working on a series of books and she introduced me to her development editor, which is now my development editor. Cause I'm actually working on a series of books too. So Sherry introduced me to this, but the other thing too, I think was very fantastic about this is because somebody listened to our podcast. They reached out to Sherry and they had her present to a local women's group. Mm-hmm. And it was it, this, you talk about getting outside your comfort zone, but we're so proud of Sherry for doing that and for telling her story and showing you can go through a lot of things, but you got to make a choice. You can either be a victor or a victim. And she chose mm-hmm. to be a victor. And I think it shows to today. Absolutely. Just so proud of you, lady. Just, I mean, proud. Yeah. Well, this next episode... It took us a SWAT team to get this person <laughs> on the episode. And then when we got her on the episode, it took a SWAT team to get her off the episode because she said, no, I, I wasn't finished. Let me come back and I got to record more. <laughs> Again, Steve, this is somebody I think you're a tad bit familiar with. I'll let you, I'll let you tee this one up. 
Yeah, this is, uh, you know, we got a lot of interest, especially from our uh, fan group on Facebook about bringing my wife on Connie. And, you know, Connie's known me since when we met. I was a police officer in West Virginia, so she's never known me to do anything else. But she is uh, one of the bravest women I've ever met. When we first met, I used to ride motorcycles. She had her own motorcycle. How can you not fall in love with a woman that owns her own motorcycle, right? Um, and it was as much her idea to go to Columbia after we'd been in Miami and, and been through everything there. She's, she was a registered nurse. She loved the excitement of the hospital, the trauma units, the ICUs. The, she finished up in a cardiac cath lab where you literally have a person's uh, life in your hands because you're going into the artery in your leg to put the, uh, the cast into the heart. Uh, but when she did her interview, I've had several people call me and they're like, dude, she didn't cut you any slack at all. And that's what you want. I, you know, put it out there. I, you know, I made a joke about how fortunate she is to be married to a peach like me. <laughs> yeah. And that went over like a turd in a punch bowl with her. It's like, yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah. That's what she still says. that. <laughs> <laughs> but again, but, but I mean, we, if you looked at that, we had a string of women there. What do we have? We had one, two, three, four, five in a row. Yep. And you know, the thing is, I, 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 you know, I look at other podcasts, very few people do interviews in true crime. They, they, it's about them reading a story and pretending to be an expert on shit. They're not experts about. Right. But what do we do? We bring the real experts on the people who were there, the people who lived it. So, you know, that's the, that's the cool thing. And this next person too, talk about an encyclopedic knowledge, Steve Cook. Oh Mr. man. Mr. Outlaw Motorcycle Gang himself. What? I mean, just, and the knowledge he's got and the people he's connected with and the stuff he's done and what, this was a masterclass. Like Matelski gave us a masterclass in organized crime. Yep. Uh, he gave us, Steve gave us, the other Steve uh, gave us a masterclass in outlaw motorcycle gangs. You know, and Javier and I, he invited Javier and I to speak at one of his conferences. He puts on a, a uh, I don't know if it's annual, but he puts on a lot of training classes throughout the year. And this one was called Gangs, Guns, and Drugs. So we flew out to Las Vegas. We got to meet Steve in person, uh, did our full program for the class, got to meet his lovely wife, Amy. Um, and then later that same week, Javier and I were speaking at the Mob Museum in, in Vegas. So we were able to bring Steve and Amy and, and Lou Velozzi in, as well as Javier's <laughs> wife, uh, to the museum with us and just had a blast with these guys. So we've... Not only, you know, professionally had him on the show and become friends that way, but now we're personal friends as well. So, Steve, thank you and Amy and, and uh, had a blast with you guys. Oh, yeah. And well, and then because of that kind of led us to our next person. So if uh, Steve was giving us a master class in outlaw motorcycle gangs, our next guy, Jay oh. Bird, gave us a master class on how to investigate outlaw motorcycle gangs and just Jay Dobbins. Is you, when they use the word legend, they mean people like Jay Dobbins. You took the word right out of my mouth there. This guy is a true legend in law enforcement. The only law enforcement, undercover law enforcement, or any police officer to become a patched member of the Hells Angels. I mean, if you don't know anything about motorcycle gangs, listen to these guys and find out. For him to get to that level is just unheard of. Yeah, and and he actually worked with Sherry Oz. They were investigating Hell's Angels back in uh, uh, Arizona and learned that Sherry learned from Jay Bird on a case she was working later, how to fake a death. So you have to understand how these guys went through fake the death to create the credibility so that they could become um, affiliated with the Hell's Angels. And uh, just, uh, and and just he, uh, he still carries the scar of working with Sherry Oz. 
<laughs> well, that was also Lou Velozzi too. So, oh, brother Lou, yeah, that's you're right. I'm sorry, you're right. Yeah, no, I wasn't I sure it was Lou. Yeah, and then then we'll have somebody coming up in a little bit too, who was the third part of that story that was there. We actually have witnesses to this too. So, <laughs> but uh, no, hey, Jay, and the other thing too is I felt bad too because Jay got he got uh, he got bohica. You know, he got screwed in the end, mm-hmm. and I don't mean in both ends. You know, at the end of his career and at the end, it's just that's the other thing too. We call out bullshit. The bureaucracy sometimes. You got to take care of people. It's like, well, we'll talk about a later case. And you, Steve, you talked about it too. Sometimes you got to take care of your people. And that means you, you do what needs to be done to take care of them because of everything they've done for you. But then you get some fucking bureaucrats, people who were involved, by the way, in Fast and Furious, fucking desk jockey, you know, swivel chair, Monday morning commandos yep. who screwed Jay over. That, that petty, that's petty uh, bureaucracy and jealousy. I mean, holy cow. It's unbelievable. I can listen to the episode. You'll find out what we're yeah. talking about. Well, he doesn't see, hold back. Again, we're getting pumped up. Well, yeah. speaking of pumped up, this next dude is a fucking stud too. Jared Reston. Oh, yeah. Another yeah. guy shot in the face, you know. Um, but here's somebody who took his training seriously, who worked out. Um, and the will to uh, – this, if nothing else, this this episode right here – is a supreme example of what it means to have the will to live. Some people, if they get injured, they just curl up in a ball and expect to die. This dude was like, fuck you. I'm coming after you. Yep. And he did. (laughs) And now he's retired from, uh, the, from Jacksonville police department in Florida and has his own training company. So he's taken his experience and his experience, his, uh, his almost fatal experience. And he's teaching that to other police officers on how to survive. Fantastic dude. Well, fantastic. And just like I said, just a great guy. And they, they, they're they very open about talking about their injuries, their recovery and everything else. So and the thing is, he went back to work. He went back on the SWAT team, just like Alex yep. Collins did. Even after being injured, he went back, got his dream job, which is to be on SWAT. So, I mean, just very proud to have guys like that on. And uh, yep. very and this motivational. Next guy, this next one, too. This actually elicited a lot of response from people because Aaron, uh, another buddy of yours that mm-hmm. you worked with. But the work he's doing now, and we started talking, this was probably one of the most educational episodes we had. I think that had a huge impact, and it was the issue of counterfeit medication. Right. So Jer- uh, Aaron was a uh, uh, started out as a San Diego, California police officer, then became a DEA agent. And we're going to have him on in a future episode because he has so many adventures. We only covered one adventure in this interview. He and was the one that we covered, he didn't even tell his wife about. And it's like, oh, sorry, dear. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and he sent me a text message the other day. We've been communi- We stay in close touch with each other. And he said that uh, even his wife is pretty proud of what occurred during that interview. I don't want to spoil it for our listeners here. You need to listen to that one, but it's extremely informative. And so uh, what I was going to say is Aaron was stationed in Mexico when Javi and I were in, Me- in Colombia. So the leads that we were developing in Colombia that we're sending to Mexico, he was out doing the same thing we were doing. That's just, they never made a narco show about it. You know, so I mean, he was, it's amazing the tales he has. And on top of everything else, he's joining us in San Diego at the Southern California Game Conference here in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and, just and phenomenal we should catch guy. up. And we should catch up on a couple of those things down there. But again, um, somebody else, when his wife listened to the podcast, she's like, oh, you did that? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't quite tell you. I didn't want you to worry. So <laughs> we, we got some more of those. But look, we go from Aaron Graham to somebody else who, I tell you, if you want to talk about lessons in leadership, um, and again, they made a movie about this training day, Denzel Washington, Ethan mm-hmm. Hawk, um, Rich Moraz, uh, captain LAPD was there at Rampart during the Rampart scandal. And, uh, this guy could have tucked his tail and just go hit and stuff, but he, he took a lot of, uh, arrows, uh, you know, so to speak, he took bullets 
and he lived to survive. It, he went through some really tough stuff, and now he teaches lessons in leadership yep. on how to recognize this slippery slope, this things that happen when you start compromising integrity and where it leads to. And and it's so cool that he did that because I know so many cops that would have become so bitter about what happened in that entire investigation and and you know they're they're kind of making him somewhat of a scapegoat in that but he didn't let that get him down either. He you know he admitted to whatever mistakes were made and he corrected those, finished his career and he's continuing to help others so that they, that they don't make the mistakes. I mean just extremely admirable what he's done in life after LAPD. Uh, Again, yeah, just stand-up guys. Now this, but when you listen to his history, though, the stuff he did, the things he was involved with, you know, he was destined to be in that spot at that time. And so, mm -hmm. just again, just he could have tucked tail and run, but he didn't. He stood up. And whether you like the story or not, you have to admire the fact that the guy didn't flinch. He stood his ground, you know, and is teaching people from that. But I'll tell you, yep. this next episode, though, Steve uh, Victor Avila, um, man. Just another guy who I think got screwed over by his agency. Um, yeah. You know, him and his, his partner was killed. Yep. Um, he was badly wounded. Um, the cartels came after him. And just the way, again, the way they treated him, I just thought was despicable. It absolutely was. And, you know, we, um, so we don't want to go too far with this, but, uh, you know, we were looking at some of the pictures and the reason that they were out on that highway the day, that day when they were attacked is, is criminal. Was not yeah. a government, was not a government um, operation. Let's say, yeah, to be on a highway that they were forbidden by the ambassador to drive on because it was so dangerous, and yet his supervisor makes him and 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 uh, Jaime Zapata go out there, and Jaime paid for it with his life. Victor was shot. I mean, it's yeah. horrible. It's horrific what this story is all about. And Jaime's name is up on the wall that we talked about in one of our, again, Patreon episodes. Um, we, we did a special for our uh, Warden of the Throne folks, and uh, we talk about the meaning of Police Week and what those names go on the wall, how much significance they have. So yep. never forget. Um, yep. So, But he was great. But here's something else a lot of people didn't know. Do you know Victor holds the world's record for longest pistol shot? Uh, you know what? It's on YouTube. Go take a look at it. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It takes from the time he fires the shot until the bullet hits the target. I mean, it's like seven or eight, 10, 12 seconds. It's unbelievable. Uh, uh, Freaking amazing. Uh, again, it just, it, I don't even want to tell you the difference because you, the distance, because you wouldn't believe him. I told you, go exactly. look up at Victor Avila, <laughs> you know, a pistol world record. Yep. And just look for yourself. I mean, yep. this was obvious. Now this next episode, I think he was in the running with Dominic Polifron for most F-bombs <laughs> dropped in an episode. And there's some people, they, I love this guy. I love Tommy. You yeah. know, they were, they have a man crush or a woman crush on Tommy Sindrick, but man. Uh. <laughs> you know, it's, and we've had a couple of negative comments about people using the F-bomb. We're not telling our guests what to say, ladies and gentlemen. This is, you know, we list our podcast as explicit and we want them to be themselves. We don't want them to pretend to be something they're not. That way it's more authentic that you get to listen to it. So if the F-bomb bothers you, you know, we're probably well, It's not a clue. We mark our podcasts explicit. So yeah. if you're listening, expect that. But the hunt, but this is another one that a book was written about. Now, we it's not on our page because Tommy didn't write it. We only want to showcase the work that's done by our guests, but Hunting LaRue yeah. Um, was a book that was written about it. I mean, this guy, as we said, was the modern day James Bond villain. This guy was responsible like a, for killing yeah, people. Like a, I'm yeah. like a master criminal. And he was a nerd. He was a really big nerd, 
But uh, I mean, even when they were arrested, he had on these big baggy shorts and look, you know, a shirt that looked like a burlap sack and, and raggy ass flip flops. <laughs> and regular handcuffs would not work on this guy. They had to improvise yeah. to even get this guy handcuffed. Uh, it, that, I tell you what, I got so excited reading that book, uh, uh, Hunting the Row, probably because I knew a lot of the people that were involved in it. But the the, the extent of the sacrifices that DEA agents will make to put their lives in danger, go to all parts of the world. I mean, your fa- your family suffers from it because you're away from home so much. Uh, Tommy, and, and uh, he was involved in this. Uh, Rob Zach was also involved in this as well. Several other, I mean, a lot of agents around the world, but fantastic story with an unbelievable ending. It's just, I just can't say enough about these guys. Yeah. <laughs> a fucking fabulous fucking ending, according to Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> and then we go from that to somebody who uh, is from a personality, maybe kind of the polar opposite of Tommy Sendrick, and that's Jimmy Capra. I mean, I thought it was yeah. a wonderful life. You know, are you related to James Capra? You know, but uh, so Jimmy, 21 tons of cocaine and 12 million in cash. I think at that time, maybe it still ranks as the largest domestic seizure of cocaine in the United States. Was well, It was the largest seizure of coke and money in the same location because the traffickers never put the dope and the money in the same location. These guys screwed up and did, and Jimmy went out and spanked them for it. And the funny and thing all about protected that, by a freaking $6 lock on the door. Yeah. <laughs> well, and remember all the negative comments he was getting from DEA headquarters? Oh, you guys are full of shit. That's not, that's not what they do. You know, that's kitty dope. Well, what do you say now there, big boy? And he, by the way, is our most prolific author. Uh, I think he's got four yeah. or five books on our page that he's written. He's written on leadership. But he's written some family books. Really a family guy, uh, very dedicated, Does uh, still goes out and teaches leadership lessons. Yep. I mean, he really is a wonderful guy. That's And he's a legend in DEA. I mean, this guy made it up to chief of operations for us. Um, and the man could get his butt chewed by some of the administrators who were holding that position at the time. And he'd come into a meeting with a smile on his face. He never let that affect him negatively. And he never portrayed that to anybody else. You wouldn't even know that anything had happened. I just have the utmost respect for Jimmy Capri, one of my really, really good friends. Yeah. Now, now our next story is also, this is somebody I reached out to, uh, and it, we really rev- revolved around the um, shooting down at the Jewish, uh, the hostage situation and the shooting down at the Jewish uh, synagogue in Colleyville, Texas, because I know the chief of police there, Michael Miller, and I saw her tweeting about this, and I'd seen her before, so I just reached out and said, hey, I saw you wrote a book, want to talk to you about it? She goes, absolutely. So we got Tracy Walder on, and what was unique about Tracy? She checked a couple boxes for us, because we had not interviewed anybody from the FBI yet. And nor had we talked to anybody who had a background in the CIA, and she did both. And here is somebody that when you look at you think, oh, just a sorority girl bouncing around USC. She she became a certified badass chasing terrorists around the world, chemical weapons, um, the work she did both in the agency and the FBI. I mean, you just – and then I just saw a tweet too, Steve. She just retired after 15 years of teaching school. Of history, so I mean, what in her book too? You you got to read it. It's the unex uh, the unexpected spy, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the way she was treated by both agencies is almost yeah. criminal as well. But she didn't let that drag her down, just like some of the other heroes we've had on here. And you know what? I was just looking through uh, my LinkedIn earlier this week, and and we have a lot of followers on. Uh, it's, well, it's just my personal thing, Stephen Murphy, but. Um, She's, we've had over 12,000, almost 13,000 hits where I put out that she was on our podcast on this episode. And that, for me, that's a lot. You know, if I get 
you know, 12 hits, I think that's a lot. Here we're getting almost 13,000 people hitting on that just to take a look and see about her interview. Uh, it, it, what a great story, too. And it's just just her perspective of the world and the things she did. This is why you want good people serving our country, folks. You don't want to run them off. You want good people like her serving our country. Absolutely. Great job, Tracy. Now, here's a friend of mine. So we get the other thing we're very good at doing, too, is getting all angles of the story. Um, <laughs> and well, this one is the, not 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 the not the stripper kicking, uh, hitting uh, or Jaybird in the face yet story. This one is about Bill Sarukas. Now, Billy Sarukas is somebody I knew from when I was doing work uh, inside the government, let's say, and uh, Billy was over at the U.S. Marshals, and we got to know each other through America's Most Wanted and John Walsh and John Clark, who was the director of the Marshals at the time. I didn't realize how uh, involved Billy was in the capture of the D.C. sniper suspects till we did his interview. And if there's somebody, if you commit a crime, there's one person I definitely do not want tracking <laughs> me down. <laughs> That's Bill Sarukas. Absolutely. And, and as we discussed, or as we talked through the interview, he and I had met each other years earlier, and I apologize to Billy that I didn't remember him. Uh, but this is the guy who really solved the sniper case because everybody yep. else thought it was going a different way. And Billy stood his ground. You know, he's an unbelievably adept investigator, and he was right. I mean, it's just it's phenomenal what he did. And it's amazing how he tracks people down, isn't it, Morgan? Yeah, especially like you coming out of a hotel in Chicago. Hey, Murph, how'd you find me here? Oh, my God. I was getting out of, Harvey and I were getting out of an Uber. We're in downtown Chicago. Billy comes walking up. Hey, Murph, I was looking for you. Well, damn, how'd you know I was here? <laughs> oh, that's spooky. That's some spooky shit right there. But the one thing Billy and I do have in common is we both love uh, the University of Notre Dame. His dad was involved with the university and the football team and the scorekeeper yeah. and the clock keeper and uh, Billy grew up there, so we get back to Notre Dame. We'll do, we, he has already told us about we're invited to his tailgate party, which I will I will participate in. Go Irish this year. So yeah. So now Steve Matelski uh, introduced Steve. us to this next guest. Yep. Steve, no, uh, you got to listen, Murph. Don't don't get ahead of me here. I am. Steve I'm Matelski listening. introduced us to our next guest, who is also named Steve. Steve Smith. So we got three Steves: Steve Matelski, Steve Murphy, and now Steve Smith. But um, Steve Smith is a cold case investigator, Toronto, um, a sergeant up there. And just, again, it's one of those things. You talk about tenacity. I want guys like yeah. this working cases like this. The, 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 the amount of hurdles they had to go through, the familiar – this is a case of familial DNA. They use genetic genealogy to track down the suspect. Uh, and we don't want to give it away because you have to listen to the story. But, I mean, the persistence – and the things that they did to solve just a single case, much less all the other cases they solved, but solved a single case. If people knew how much time and effort police officers and detectives and agents, you know, federal agents put into solving cases, you would be amazed. Well, and the cool thing about this, too, is they were able, able to eliminate people who were innocent, but certainly looked guilty from the physical evidence. Uh, it's amazing. And, and here's what I really like about Steve and this group is. You meet so many police officers that when they get years on the job, they think they know everything and they're not they're not really interested in new technology. Well, these guys weren't like that at all. They went to classes to learn more about DNA and man, they are kicking butt on their investigations. It's it's unbelievable what they do. Uh and just like I said, you know, and um and they their their uh impetus that basically would inspire them to do this. They went to some training where some people talked about the Golden State Killer and how they used familial DNA to track that piece of garbage down. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was good stuff. Well, we go from that to now the third leg of the stripper story. So we had yeah. Lou, we had Jay, and now we got Chris Bayless. And you talk about another legend, a guy who just, 
what a number one, what a humble guy, but then what a just uh, he is an he is an operator, man. There's no other word. This guy is the real deal. You know what? If I'm thinking of a of a real tough guy, I mean a guy who doesn't toot his own horn, but you better not screw with him. It's Chris Bayless, and this is a guy that Jay Dobbins and Lou Velozzi look up to. You know, they'll tell you that the Chrisser, they call him the Chrisser. Chrisser is the guy that they learn from, that they go to for advice. Um, and to have him on the show, he's become a friend now. It's it's just unbelievable that we get access to people like this. Um, his story is just fantastic. And, and he's continuing to do good things even in retirement. You know, and, and the thing that I really like about him, and you'll hear it at the end of our interview with Chris, is he's used his facts to justify position. He doesn't use other people's opinions. He doesn't listen to the media who try to, to exploit things and blows things completely out of uh, out of reality. So yeah, I, no, he, he takes the facts. He 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 comes. He he looks at the facts and then develops a position based on the facts, not the other way around. He doesn't develop a position and then find the facts that fit his theory. So, uh, right. but yeah, he he combats gun violence. But I'll tell you, the biggest takeaway for me on this was he actually called me. Um, and, and just wanted to let me know is that he had had people reaching out to him. We talked about a lot of these episodes. We talk about suicide. We talk about people mm-hmm. who got into really dark places. Lou talked about it. He was very upfront about it. Jay, um, these, some people were very, very close, very close to, mm-hmm. to ending their life. And Chris talks about, and talks about the impact about how he started working with a psychologist, a PhD to bring other people to it. And other people, after they heard the episode, reached out to Chris, said, Hey, uh, can you help me? So, I mean, to me, that was a huge win. Fantastic. And and just that right there alone makes that one of the best episodes we've had on the entire, all the episodes of Game of Crimes, because it's potentially saving lives. Well, here's somebody else who's saving lives, I have no doubt. And she is a force to be reckoned with. She is a force <laughs> of nature. Uh, Christy Schiller, man, what can you say about the legend, the myth, the person who watching TV one night and saw a story about a police officer, a canine handler who lost his dog uh, that was killed. It was choked to death by, uh, there were after two suspects and, and one of the guys attacked the dog and choked it to death. It affected her so much. She said, hold my beer. <laughs> yep. I'm going to do something about this. And she did. And she created canines for cops and canines for kids, which have actually spawned several stories for us. And Christy, no law enforcement background other than you have to hear her story. She was a victim yeah. of a serial offender. And she's lucky she survived. This is, I, I, you know what? I've come to love Christy and I don't even know her. I mean, other than, you know, our interview with her, I, I hope I have the opportunity to meet her in person someday. This is a, a lady who saw an issue and we all say something, you know, you see something on TV and you'll say, oh, somebody ought to do something about that. Not Christy. Just like you said, she said, hold my beer. She went out and did something. Her canine for cops has donated over 300 police dogs to agencies around the United States and one agency in France who really don't have the budget to, to have a canine. And she's not slowing down. I mean, this woman's got more energy than any 10 men I know, I think. She's unbelievable. So hats off to you, Christy. Oh, yeah. And so we've got we've got a couple of stories coming up that uh, got the whole thing kicked off. We're actually going to talk to the uh, officer that day who lost his dog. The, and, you know, and this will get it started. Mm-hmm. But it, again, what great stuff. Uh, and then Here's another one, too, that um, a movie has been made, a couple books have been written, and it looks like another movie is about to be made. And this guy had the distinction of working, I think, at three separate federal agencies, Mm -hmm. Um, Bob Mazur. Yeah, Bob is, uh, you know, after after our interview, 
I didn't know about his second undercover right before he retired. I, I'm thinking we ought to send him for some psychological testing here because this Why guy, the hell? You, you talk about <laughs> deep cover. This guy went deep cover on the money laundering side of the Medellin cartel successfully, survived it, comes back out, and then gets involved against the, uh, the Cali cartel on the money laundering side. And it's just, this guy's life is in danger every day he opens his eyes. He's putting his family behind, uh, you know, Bob was uh, with us the last time uh, we went to the Southern California Gang Conference. He was there as a speaker also, so we got to meet in person. But, man, I'm just doing some phenomenal work. You've got to listen to his interview. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing that, that guys are putting their lives on the line like this. Yeah, uh, and I'll tell you, too, the other thing, too, he wrote a book called The Betrayal. Um, you got to read that, too, because, again, you know, our saying is that nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is this is how he potentially was set up yep. by a bad cop. And so you have to you have to listen to the episode and understand why that upset us as well, too. But Bob Mazer, man, um, he's going through something right now. So we wish him all the best for that, too. So true. The next one now ties back to Luis Navia. We always we always tie these things together. So Eric Kolbinski, um, such a nice guy, <laughs> but He's a riot, and I literally mean he's a riot. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's the he's the proverbial contrarian, I think would be the way I'd describe him. You know, somebody says, "Hey, this is it," and he's like, "Yeah, no, it's not. Let's take a closer look at this." And I love that about him. He started a riot at the Grateful Dead concert. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody had to do it. <laughs> that might as well be me. But but then again, he gets involved with Luis Navia, ends up being his handler. Basically, he's not so involved in the case up to that point. Right. But afterwards, him and Luis uh, just basically clicked, and he ended up becoming his handler and working with him and managing him with under other agencies and stuff. And but he's got some great stories too. And uh, uh, just <laughs> he's a tall guy too. But when we said he literally he was a riot, yeah, he was a riot. <laughs> yeah, or caused riots, <laughs> something like that. Caused riots, caused riots, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. But Eric was cool. Well, then the next episode we have episode forty six. We're getting close to the end here. Uh, but Ted Dolan. Ted Dolan was the inspiration for Canines for Cops. It was his partner mm-hmm. that he lost. And we talk, we don't just say dog. He lost his partner. It was his partner. It affected him. In fact, Ted will tell you that even his uh, boss later told him, son, you, you need to go get some help, you know, because he it affected him so badly. Even years later, he was still struggling with how to manage his emotions because of that. He was. And uh, the job that he's doing down there, he's, he's like, like all these other heroes we talk about on here, has not, letting that, has not let that get him down. He's continuing to do an outstanding job. He sets a standard for other canine officers to follow, and, and he's leading the way. So it's a, it's a fantastic story, courtesy of Christy Schiller. Yeah, Black Black was the canine that lost his life that inspired everything else. So as uh as Ted said, he said, Look, these guys thought they killed a dog. He said, No, what they did is they put another three hundred on the street. So Exactly. Um, yeah, the exactly. joke's on them. So assholes. Yep. Um and, and we also talk about too about the laws around protecting canines. So it's a really great episode. And you you will come to understand the people who handle canines, they're extremely dedicated to their work because these dogs are high maintenance. You have to train them, you have to take care of them. They want these dogs live to work, and they dogs are the only thing on earth that love you more than they love themselves, and they yeah. will literally work themselves to death uh, before giving up. And so uh, this is why what Ted does and the, the other folks do is so important. Well, we go from that to 
somebody it's kind of a, a contradiction in terms because when we started interviewing, he started saying, well, I'm, I'm the FBI, but he was very humble about it. He says, I'm very honored to be on here, very humbled. I'd never heard anybody from the FBI use that and the word humble in the same sentence. And Jerry Clark <laughs> is a man of men. Yeah, he was a fantastic interview. And this one came about from a friend of mine, Kevin Barwin, who uh, lives in Erie, Pennsylvania. And we've been friends for several years. Uh, snow, we were all snowbirds together down in, in Melbourne, Florida for the past several years. And um, every morning when we're at the beach, Kevin and I, we get up early before the sun rises and we get our coffee and we go out and sit and watch the sun come up. And we solve the problems of the entire world there about two hours. And then the world goes all to hell in the hand basket. And the next day we have to do the same thing again. But just in conversation one day, he said, did you ever hear about the pizza bomber? And I hadn't. I can't believe that I hadn't because of the notoriety of this case. But I went and looked it up. I bought the book, read about Jerry Clark, called him, or I actually uh, emailed him. He's a professor now at a college in Erie, Pennsylvania. And he didn't hesitate, man. He was, he was one of the most excited people I've called yet to, hey, could you possibly be on a show for an interview? And he got me excited because he was so excited. But the story he tells, I mean, it, it's in-depth. It's multiple years. The challenges that they faced, he, he turned down potential promotions. Uh, it's just an unbelievable story. And you're right, Morgan, the, the humble side of Jerry is not indicative of most of the FBI people we know. <laughs> And we, Especially we, we love the FBI, but it's required by law that we pick on them at least once an episode. So there what you can go. I tell you? Yeah. <laughs> but Jerry Jerry was a great guy. Now, um, another story that was spawned from uh, Christy, then Ted, we talked to Randy Tooman, who is a uh, sergeant with the Fayette County Sheriff's Office down in Texas. And him and Colt are just killing it out there on the interstates, I-10. I mean, they are seizing things left and right. But the biggest – but just to put this in perspective – they seized 15 pounds, I think it was or 15 kilos of fentanyl. That 15 kilos was worth $100 million, and it could have killed, at a minimum, half the state of Texas, half of the Republic of Texas. It, one stop could have taken out half the Republic. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, we all know what, scur what a scourge fentanyl has become here in the United States. You know, and these guys that are out there, especially the canine officers that are doing traffic stops, traffic stops one of the most dangerous things a police officer can do because you really don't know who you're coming up against from the get-go. Um, and, you know, we saw some – he told us a story about where he crawled under a vehicle to uh, access a hidden compartment and had liquid dropping down on him, yeah. which ended up being liquid meth. That's <sighs> If that had been fentanyl, the man would have died right there. And what do we so, say, kids? Don't do meth. And don't absolutely. do it accidentally either. And we've and what that kind of led to is is we have a friend, another retired DE agent who's involved with companies that have equipment that may not may that will help uh, uh, Randy and these other canine officers to do their job more safely. So we put them in touch. And uh, but it's I love hearing these stories about the canine officers. I mean, everything from what they do on duty to what their family life is like as well. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, no, it is. And then uh, episode 49, um, Chris Moore. Again, another great story, Chris and his canine partner, Zico. Not only do they capture a capital murder suspect, they literally, literally save a life. Because had they not deployed the dog, had the dog not been there, this guy would have been smoked by the SWAT team. Absolutely. And that's what it's about. You know, the police officers don't want, you know, contrary to what you might believe, police officers do not want to kill people. That's not why you take the job. You take... The vast, vast, vast majority of police officers take the job because they want to help others. 
you know, there are bad apples in every career occupation in the world, including law enforcement. And those are the ones that get all the attention. Here's Chris doing his job and actually saves a defendant's life, a suspect's life that day. Great, fantastic story. And then we end up with episode 50 in Pablo's Hippos. And I think that's where we'll end it for now. I mean, we went we went long. We, we wanted to really do just kind of cover the first 50 episodes, give you guys a perspective of all the people that we've talked. And you know what? We've talked so much. I don't think there's a need for us to do an outro here because <laughs> it's me, Steve, and JP talking about it. You know what we're going to say? We're going to say just join us n- next week for the next episode of Game of Crimes. You know, follow us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We're going to tell you all that good stuff. We don't need to tell you again. So I think we will just close out with this by saying, Murph, are you ready now to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the original, unadulterated, and canine-friendly Game of Crimes? Absolutely, everyone. Get in, sit down, shut up, hold on, and let's find out about Pablo's hips hippos as well as Javier's little secret. (laughs) On the second floor. (laughs) There you go. See you guys. This is a momentous episode. We should get somebody with a real good radio voice to talk about it. This is episode sequente, episode 50 of Game of Crimes. And we thought, what better way to celebrate episode 50 of Game of Crimes than to bring back our senior agent in residence, Javier Pena, with Steve. And this time, I will be the sole host of the program. And I will be interviewing Steve and JP because we want to talk about well, we're going to talk about Pablo, obviously, but here's what we're going to talk about. Pablo, still to this day, obviously, big draw, Narcos, uh, Narcos Mexico. You know, you guys keep getting interviewed about stuff. But there is one thing about Pablo, too, that people don't, I think, realize that he introduced into Colombia other than death and mayhem and uh, cocaine. <laughs> but that lives till today. <laughs> and it's Pablo's hippos. <laughs> I mean, everyone who- you know, people ask about Pablo's hippos. Pablo's Hippos. So, JP, let's start off with you because you were down there first, but before Murph got there. I mean, did you have any clue at all that hippos were going to be such a big deal? And when's the first time you ran into one of Pablo's Hippos or heard about them? <laughs> Great question. And not at all. You know what? In, as soon as he escaped, we took over the ranch. We raided the ranch. As a matter of fact, I, I'll always remember I stayed, uh, I think I spent like five nights there at the famous uh, Finca Napolis at the ranch house. Now, so hey, JP, could... did you sleep in that bed too, as well as the one in La Catedral? No, no, not that <laughs> I slept in. I think I slept in some cot, some bullshit cot out there on the floor. <laughs> but it, it was it was pretty cool. You know what? When, when I got there, I had never. We you know we had always heard of Finca Napolis, and you know we called his pride and joy. He loved his ranch. You know the a finca in Colombia is a ranch, and uh, the the first thing that you know when uh, you fly into it, you notice the airstrip. It's like it's a giant airstrip, and that's where all the traffickers from Colombia, the United States, would come in and, and party with him. Anyway, so. The first thing that astonished me is uh, when I was there was the dinosaur park he had. I mean, real life, gigantic dinosaurs. But like you Jurassic know, Park? Like Exactly like Jurassic Park. I mean, it was, and, and this were huge. They weren't just, you know, they were, I don't know, 40, 50 feet high. He had built them to replica. 
and it, it was just, you know, I guess uh, he wanted all the, you know, his kids to have fun in the dinosaur park. Then, like I said, then I saw a, uh, I always remember, a bullfighting ring. Who has a bullfighting ring in their rights, right? Uh, it, it, and it was it was like a stadium-like, professional-built bullfighting ring stands and you know i mean i've uh you know mexico has some spain has some you've seen pictures movies but it was like a, a stadium bullfighting ring and and then but you know what when we were there i was always noticing all this uh fancy birds peacocks uh toucans just walking around roaming around like like you know and i was like what are all this you know uh exotic birds here and then i think one of the cops hey wait till you go see the zoo javier i said what he's got a zoo in the zoo was it was enclosed with corral. It was a corral type zoo, you know, wood uh, wood beams, no real fences. It was just, you know, wood. And then I said, "Man, is that an elephant down there?" <laughs> it was like I always remember elephants. You know, like he had elephants. And then all of a sudden, you know, and it was like a pasture. There was no cages, no uh, no barricade, just a wooden barricade, just like a corral. And then I started seeing, in fact, uh, I was looking at my pictures, you know, then uh, I saw some zebras uh, and then uh, some This some sounds giraffes. like a Sesame, this sounds like yeah. a Sesame Street episode. <laughs> oh, look at yeah. the zebras and the lions. Yeah, some zebras. You know, there, there was no lions or tigers, not that I saw. And I'm, or bears, well, oh my. Yeah, yeah. Or, or bears. But uh, water buffaloes, buffaloes, and then there was like a little lake area full of mud, and then I saw the famous hippos. You know, they were in that mud, uh, and then uh, there's a, I just uh, refreshed my memory, saw a photo of one of the hippos. There's a, like a cement uh, trough, you know, where he's eating a whole bunch of carrots. There's just carrots all over the place, the hippos, you know, munching on the carrots. And uh, but uh, it it was like you know how did he get in though and then oh yeah the, let's not forget the rhinoceroses so and I'm I'm not sure whatever happened with the rhinoceroses right I mean uh, uh, I know that the the hippos that's part of our story that they escaped but he had rhinoceroses there also so but it was like I said, a ranch style, no cages, just animals all roaming around. And we, I, I did not have an idea that the guy had animals on his, uh, on his ranch. So it was kind of, it was an eye opener. And, and you know what, but all those animals were just roaming around freely, eating, doing what they do best. Uh, the elephants, I have a picture. I'm petting one of them. I think I'm even uh, feeding him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, like I said, the, the dinosaur park, it, I mean, it was just astonishing. And then, uh, you know, obviously we get to the famous ranch house where he had all his meetings, his parties. And uh, it was just an exotic building. Um you know, then the stories of all the parties and the meetings there at the ranch house. That that was his, he loved his ranch house. Uh, and, he, you know, they took care of it. Yeah, go ahead. Real quick, bookend for us too. At, at what point during the hunt for Pablo did he um, evacuate his ranch? Did he have to leave his ranch? I mean, so when you were down there the first time, was the Napoli's active and stuff? Or was it before or after Lakata Drow when he abandoned the ranch? 
It was before La Catedral. It was before La, the before he surrendered, he abandoned it. And the reason I remember this so clearly is because this is like, I think, one of the first times in DEA history. Our purpose of going to the ranch and staging from there was we uh, interviewed a famous uh, informant. The guy's dead now, but anyway, and I'm uh, not making light of it, but this guy was Jose Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha's right-hand man. In, in the story, it's a great story. He wanted to talk to us, so we got permission, and we spent like five days talking to this guy. Gotcha loved this guy. This guy loved Gotcha. He was a, his head of security. But when Gotcha, Mexicano, Pablo's partner, gets killed, Pablo tells this guy, Henry, hey, you're going to work for me because, you know, this guy was really good at security. And uh, Henry told us he did not like Pablo. He hated Pablo because of all the people that he was killing. So, and Henry's famous in Colombia, like I said, because he was the leader of a paramilitary group there and uh, taking care of all of Jose Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha's ranches. And Gacha, again, was Pablo's partner. Gacha was killed in 1989. So that was our purpose. And just uh, real quick, I mean, this guy hated Pablo. He hated Pablo because of all the atrocities that he was doing. And, you know, Pablo was trying to tell him what to do. So anyway, so he turned against Pablo, you know, but and uh, he was helping us out. And it was great information about uh, the training camps in Colombia, about Pablo Escobar. Uh, so it was great information for me. And the reason I talk about this is that's why I was there at the ranch, and that's why we spent about five days there at Pablo's ranch. So basically, your, your question is, this was before he yeah, before he surrendered. So Murph, I suppose you're going to take credit not only for Pablo surrendering, but for him uh, leaving the ranch because you showed up in country, right, and all of this stuff happens, or did that happen before you get there? Well, he, he knew Javier was dead on his ass, so he that's why he took off running. But when I got there, that's when he, uh, oh, shit, they got both of them now. <laughs> That's our story, and we're sticking to it. Yeah, okay. Well, so the reality. So, when's the first time you visited Finca Napoli's there, Murph? Uh, you know, it was after he'd escaped from prison uh, when Javier and I started living up with the cops there in Medellin during the you know the the final manhunt that lasted eighteen months. And you would go out on missions uh, with the Columbia National Police on the helicopters, and and sometimes you would, uh, you know, they'd drop you off on a mountaintop and you'd go on patrol all day long and then they'd pick you up. And if you were over in that part of the of Antioquia, which is the state where Medellin is located, they would take you to the to Pablo's ranch because it had been converted into a police base. So, and this is kind of cool too. They had seizure laws in Colombia, but they didn't have forfeiture laws at the time. So they could use cars or ranches or whatever but then because there were no forfeiture laws, when they were worn out or you know, no, no longer had a need for them, they would uh, just vacate them. And I guess it could go back to the original owner where the cars were all ragged out by then or wrecked. But, uh, and the nice thing about going there was at the police base where Javi and I were living, you got uh, potatoes, rice, and maybe a piece of chicken three times a day. Yeah, we talked about the rubber chicken in episode one, yes. Yep. But if you were over at the base, you got a tough steak. So it was a variety. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, and and how many? And so you started counting. Okay, there used to be four rhinoceroses. Now there are three. Hmm, this tastes a little weird. Doesn't taste like chicken. So uh, it was good, but that's that's the first time I saw the animals. 
So, but so who who was taking care of them? What, were they just allowed to roam, or were the the CNP, the national police, taking care of them, feeding them? Who who was who was responsible for that? You know what? They they had workers at the, at the ranch at, at the famous Finkanopolis. They had workers, and I remember there was about twenty of them. Everybody had the job of cleaning, especially the the waste from the animal, because they were just roaming around all over the place. And uh, when we interviewed, did you ever step them, into a, a a huge hippo pie or a rhinoceros pie? <laughs> of of course, <laughs> they were all over the place, man. <laughs> but I always remember that when you interview the work. They were like, hey, we don't know who owns it. We just know someone comes once a month, brings us our monthly payment. Uh, we get paid, and uh, we're happy with that. But uh, they did not know that it was Pablo Escobar's uh, zoo, the, the workers, because, like I said, they were just out there cleaning. They'd cook. Uh, they'd feed the guests. and uh, But, the, you know, and I remembered uh, also there's uh, an old car, bullet riddled, and uh, you know the rumors are that it belonged to Al Capone. Whether it did or not, we're not sure. But you know what? That's a great story. I mean, I'd believe it. If Pablo Escobar told me that was Al Capone's uh, bullet riddled car, it, it was Al Capone's bullet riddled car. Well, anybody who can smuggle four hippos into a country can surely smuggle one car. Right, right, yeah. And, and he and was you know in what? the smuggling business too, wasn't he? That's mm. what they say. I'm okay. really not sure about that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but also, he was building other houses. It was just amazing. We took a tour. There was houses under construction. So uh, it, it was just uh, uh, unbelievable. But uh, I just, like I said, you know, who had seen a, a bullfighting ring, <laughs> like I said, and just animals and just what uh, still in my in my mind is just roaming around freely, doing uh, whatever they wanted, you know, mingling with each other. Uh, and I think, like you said, I know that the hippos were eating a whole bunch of carrots. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, um, Steve, while you were down there, too, uh, just, you know, just from an animal standpoint, I mean, what did it look like to you the first time you showed up there and you see this stuff like, you know, you see the dinosaurs and everything? Remind you, I mean, you're living close to Disney now. Was it like Disney in Columbia? <laughs> well, it was It was definitely odd. Um, you know, Connie and I, we love going to zoos anywhere we live. And uh, it was extremely unique. You know, you hear the stories where drug traffickers will buy a lion or a jaguar or something like that just to be different. And I think that's why Pablo did it. He just... You know, he was, it was another example of, I've got so much money, look how I can just piss it away. You know, I went and bought all these exotic animals, but it was pretty cool to go in there because uh, I don't know that I'd ever seen a rhino at that time. And here's one, you know, I took, I've got a great picture of one standing there broadside. Um, I was a little surprised. I don't, I never saw any monkeys there. Did you, JP? Yeah, there, there were. I remember now. Oh, and this were in a cage, so it was an enclosed. I remember the monkeys, a whole bunch of them. And you know what? We we did not take pictures mm -hmm. of them, but uh, he had he had monkeys there. Yes. And we were there one time. Actually, I was there with JP one time. We were, I don't remember what we were doing. I guess we were meeting yeah, the cops there. Yeah, something, yeah. And uh, saw the uh, peacocks walking around, but they yeah. didn't have the beautiful tails. They were... I didn't see any that had the tails. They were, it was like the feathers had fallen off, so it looked like they weren't being taken really good care of. But like JP said, there were toucans running around everywhere. And, yeah. yeah. Um, you saw camels. I mean, just you saw the oddest yeah. things there, you know? So give us an idea size-wise. I mean, did you – acre-wise, do you know how big it was? Do you know how big was the 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 the, the, the Finca Napolis? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of stories, but I, I think it was more like 10,000 acres. That's I remember that uh, figure's always been in my head uh, when the cops said. And he was buying land all around there uh, and building, like I said, he had a beautiful house going up. It wasn't close to Nopolis. I mean, it was in the area. I'm saying I remember about a couple of miles away because we had to take the chopper out there. And it was a brand new house that they were building. So he was expanding on it. And uh, But the, the main ranch houses, and, and I think there is where we found pictures of Pablo and his buddies. Uh, they were, I remember they were on a bench on the second floor, Pablo's without a shirt, and uh, two of his friends there. And, uh, well, Morgan, I don't know if I can mention this, but I'm going to mention it. <laughs> Something kind of unique that's always stuck in my mind on the second floor. <laughs> I think I can uh -oh. mention it, right? He had a sex swing. <laughs> Oh, you know, you at, at that time, you know, you would see pictures, you would hear, a, what the hell's a sex swing? So I remember. How did you it know was it was a, a sex I, swing, well, Javier? And said. exactly where did you stay when you were staying I at Finkanapolis? I, <laughs> I am not going to compromise my <laughs> integrity on that. But it, I've been told it was a sex swing. And uh, then even the cops, it was like a regular swing and it had a. Believe me, it was a sex week. <laughs> yeah, I remember it was on the second floor. So <laughs> anyway, I just throw that out there. So, uh, but uh, uh, he he loved uh, that house. He he loved uh, that main house, and I said we got pictures with it. Uh, had a swimming pool. A lot of stories about the parties, but uh, that I mean. That that like and, and Steve says it best. You know what? He was just showing off to other traffickers, and and later on we found out that American pilots would come in, and they'd uh, meet with him at his famous Finkanopolis. And he was this other traffickers. Remember, you would tell uh, somebody, you would say, you know, I got invited to Pablo Escobar's Finkanopolis. I mean, that was a, a, a glory. That was that was bragging rights for the rest of your life if you got invited to Pablo Escobar's ranch. Hey, Steve and Murph, episode two, when we talked to George Young, did George Young not meet Pablo out at Finkanapolis? He says he did, but when I asked him to describe it, uh, his description of where it was located didn't match where it's really located. He said it was it was really close to the city of Medellin. I mean, if we flew out there by Hilo, it was probably a 30-minute flight. Yeah, at okay. least a 30-minute. And, and remember, he had other ranches. I mean, he had tons of ranches yeah. near Medellin, so it could have been another one. And, you know, there, I mean, but uh, Napolis, it, and if you look at why he named the Finca Napolis, right? I mean, it's it's an Italian name, correct? Napolis? It's like Napoli, you know, yeah, from yeah. Uh, Italy, Right, right. And remember, he, he loved uh, Italian architects. Uh, so, but I mean, it's a, it's, it's a great name. And, uh, you know, at the, at the beginning, he had his, uh, he had an airplane right over the gate of Finkanopolis. And, uh, yeah, that very famous picture. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about that. I wanted to go back real quickly for a second. You talked about the workers were getting paid and the money was coming in. They didn't know who it was coming from. Do you know who was paying the workers every month? No, nah, I, I, I do not. He had different people. But then that'd be the same scenario at houses he was building. When you interview him and say, no, hey, a guy just shows up with money. Once a month we get paid, we're happy. And that was the regular MO. That you would, okay. you would hear that story 99% of the time. I don't know who owns it. We just get paid. We work here, you know. 
So how long did you how long how long did you operate out of uh, Finkanapolis? You know, during this time, was it until he was uh, killed, or did at some point did you guys migrate and move away from the the Finca? No, we stayed there um, pretty much until the end of the manhunt, uh, and we didn't stay there. But I mean, it was occupied by the Columbia National Police. They had created a base there for that part of the of the country. Um, and if you recall, you know, America's Most Wanted came down and did one series, did one episode only of the world's most wanted and Javier took, uh, we took him up to Medellin for a week, um, took him in and Hacienda Napoli's actually set a roadblock out, uh, in front of the entrance there for a very short time, uh, and took him into the little town close by where they could get some film footage. But it was with the stipulation, you know, we had a full police escort, truckloads of police officers. And they said, listen, <laughs> you got 10 minutes and then we got to go because, you know, within 15 or 20 minutes, they can mount an operation and then attack us out here. Um, so it was, you know, this is very pro Escobar territory out there. Well, is it still? Yeah. I mean, right, right now, what I hear, I mean, it's pretty much abandoned. Uh, but, uh, what, what I hear, like I said, after Escobar, uh, gets killed, the police vacated the ranch. And I think, I don't know who came in from the government to try to take it over, or I think what they did was. U.S. Marshals do. They hire caretakers for it, right, to care for it. They were supposed to turn it into a big uh, museum-type ranch, and that never happened because it it is kind of far, and it is a lot of FARC and AUC people, the paramilitary, the FARC, are are still out there. So it was a little bit on on the dangerous side. And in fact, People will not drive there because, you know, I mean, you are going to be uh, going through the badlands. Yeah, badlands. That is correct. Yeah. So, Steve, let's go back to what you were talking about. So John Walsh came down there with his crew Mm -hmm. to film for a week. I mean, so one thing we all have in common, we've all met John Walsh, you know. Um, Well, he didn't come. He didn't come. He sent a producer in the film crew. Oh, he didn't come down. No. I don't. You remember that guy's name? Green screen it or something or? No, nah, they the producer, he was the he was the mouthpiece of the show. You know, he was the host or I don't even know what you call that person. Uh he was the one that was on camera. And we would point things out to him. We'd take him to different places. Uh I remember one time we were in Medellin and a report came in of uh of a bombing going off in one of the barrios. So we all jumped into police cars and hauled butt out there and they got some footage out there where a building had been blown up by, you know, Escobar's associates. Um, oh, okay. I thought yeah, he may so. have been down there because I know he had gone to, I think, Mexico a couple times or some other places, you know, putting on the helmet and the vest, you know, obviously trying to create drama. But um, mm-hmm. did, I mean, so they made a TV show. Did anything come out of it at all? They just put it on there, like, say they're looking for him and no leads, no nothing out of it? I'm sure some leads came in because everybody wanted that uh, that reward money, but <laughs> nothing <laughs> legitimate. <laughs> right. And also, you know what, let's not forget, and I think uh, Steve and I were interviewed for this one too, is that Brits mercenaries had been hired, and this is around 1988, British mercenaries had been hired by the Cali cartel to go kill Pablo, attack him at his famous ranch, Napolis. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of stuff on that where they planned the operation. It was financed by the Cali cartel. and uh, But they had intelligence. They had pinpointed him. He was at the ranch. And I 
It was about what, remember, Steve? It was about 30, 40 guys, Britain mercenaries. Yeah, it was two helicopters worth, I believe, and one of the helicopters crashed. Right. And, and that is right. a fact. that It did crash, and uh, they basically, uh, the operation was, was next, but uh, they were going to try to kill Pablo at his ranch. I mean, they, they tried. They, the, the operation uh, started, a chopper crashed, and I think the terrain was difficult. Uh, the, the flying conditions were difficult, So, but uh, and I think some of the Brits were stuck out there in mountains, right? I mean, Yeah, there was a few of them that were killed, and there was a couple that, from that crashed helicopter that were able to get out, one or two. I, I think that's all that survived. Now, did he take any countermeasures down at uh, Finkanapolis like he did at La Catedral to prevent the landing of helicopters? Um, and maybe that's where he learned his lesson from, right? Because uh, you told me, right, he put posts and stuff up to prevent helicopters from landing mm -hmm. on the grounds. Yeah, I I don't remember seeing anything at the ranch. Do you, JP? No, nah, no, nah, nothing at the ranch. But I, 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 basically, the story is that the Sicarios had been trained by the Israeli Israeli mercenaries uh, how to take care of the ranch, and 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 that is true. The the Israeli mercenaries were the ones who trained the. Uh, uh, you know, Pablo Sicarios, Gacha Sicarios. Uh, however, if you listen to some of the British uh, mercenaries, they say they were way ahead of the Sicarios. It's better trained than the Sicarios, yeah. and I believe that. Yeah, yeah. You have to train for a long time to get to that level, and I just I think they were just trying to gear up for that operation. But as we said, this episode is about Pablo's hippo, so let me ask you a hippo question. Um, <laughs> okay. Did, <laughs> Those are dangerous little sons of bitches, man. You're not kidding. How close? So, Murph, let's start with you. How close did you come? Did you get right up close to one of those hippos, or did you keep your distance? I've got, uh, in fact, we show the photograph uh, in our presentation when we speak to audiences. I've got one of the hippo inside his, his pen eating from a concrete trough like, uh, like Javier was describing to you. And then I also remember one time we were there, and I could see... They were there was a big water pit there inside the pen for them, and they were both the two that I saw were in the water. You could see just their backs sticking out a little bit. And every once in a while, you'd see their eyes peek above the water. They'd look around, and then they'd duck back under the water. So that was plenty close enough for me. Uh, you know, when you're looking at those <laughs> pens, and it's just it's it's wood fencing. It's it's like uh, you know it's like a regular fencing you'd see on a ranch. I'm thinking it's like, like if. These bad boys weighing three tons, they could push that fence over anytime they wanted to. There was, nothing, there was no steel reinforcement. Yeah, and they're deceptively fast. I mean, I used to watch Wild Kingdom with Marlon Perkins. I've watched the dangerous oh, yeah. Jim attack the dangerous anaconda. But uh, so let me ask you a question, though, about the hippos, because there is a tie-in back to Narcos. Mm -hmm. Because uh, remember when they were kind of setting the stage now for Narcos Mexico, they went back in time. They had to get the episode with Pablo and the hippos. <laughs> Let's talk about that for a minute. Cause that is so iconic. I mean, that, that was, to me, that was one of the, 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 the great shots out of that episode was just the fact that they went back in time and there it was Pablo's hippos. Well, and, and I'm thinking of a scene where uh, one of the Mexicans, Mexicans had gone down when they had made the deal with the Cali cartel. This is in Narcos, Mexico. So this is TV. I don't know if it's true or not. Um, they go down and then Pablo finds out that they kidnapped the Mexican and then he has to go meet Pablo because what the hell are you doing business with the Cali for, you know, because those are my enemies. If, if, 
those are my enemy and you're their friend. That makes you my enemy. And remember, they're talking to him on on a uh, like a little bridge, and there's a gazebo there, and, yeah. and a couple of the Sicarios are standing off the side. Oh, it might have been. Uh, no, it wasn't him. I can't remember which character it was now. But anyway, there were noises off in the background, and he said, "What's that?" And they said, "That's hippos screaming." And you know, the implication was that there's hippos in the water. And throughout the conversation, uh, the guy asked Pablo at the end. He said, "What would have happened if you didn't believe me?" And he said, "I'd push you in the water with the hippos." So that's <laughs> that's that's the that's the reference I remember. And um, you know what the research that we've done. Like you said, you can't outrun a hippo. If you're running a straight line, a hippo can catch you. And oh, you man. You certainly yeah. can't outswim the damn things. No. I mean, it's so, yeah, the only thing you can do is just not get around them little things in the first place. And I think I was pulling it up here, too. It was episode five um, in Narcos, Mexico, I think, season one. But it's like, but I was watching that, and it's like just... The thing is, is that, like you say, Steve, how do we know? I don't know if it's true or not. We we decided that with uh, Narcos itself, right. it's about, you know, a third, a third, and a third. But the fact is, is that the hippos were down there. And so let me ask you, here's an, let's, let's work into a little bit more Pablo's hippos. Let me ask you this. Because <laughs> speaking of smuggling, it's one thing to smuggle kilos of Coke because you can wrap them up. They don't think, you know, so think about this. How the hell do you smuggle three females and one male hippo into the country of Colombia and take them all the way down to Finca Napoles. I mean, let's talk, how could this have been accomplished? <laughs> a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of bright money. Uh, <laughs> hey, remember money moves, uh, moves the world. It, you know what? That's a great question. And everybody, and I don't think anybody really came up with the answer on how they were smuggled uh, into Colombia. I mean, we've heard stories where they they hired people, but I guess, you know, I, uh, via boat, vessel, at the ports, you could buy off anybody. So uh, then just ship mm -hmm. them via trucks. And, uh, you know, if you say they belong to Pablo Escobar, money's been paid, who's going to question, you know? Uh, but, you know, the fact is that they were there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, how, how, yeah. how do you get them there? That's a great question. You know what? Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, Morgan, but um, gosh, way back in our careers, Javier and I both still on the job, Animal Planet did a an episode on Pablo's Hippos. This was years ago. We could probably look it up here on Google and see what it, when that was. But so we both flew up to DEA headquarters in Washington for these interviews. And, you know, hell, I don't know anything about hippos. <laughs> and so we're, we're talking, and the producer educated us on that. They said, you know, the, here's the issue with, with Pablo's hippos is that in Africa, hippos reproduce on average once every three years because of the lack of water and vegetation there because, you know, it's a very arid, dry environment. Well, in Colombia, don't have that problem because where they were, it was very lush. It was very green. There was rivers everywhere, lakes, plenty of water for them. Plenty for them to eat. They don't eat meat. They're, they're, uh, I guess you call it vegetarian. I don't know if that's what you call it, an animal that only eats plants, but um, they don't eat meat. And so these puppies are reproducing every year. They're a herbivore. Herb, there you go. So, um, and like you said, I mean, <laughs> they went from four hippos, and the most recent thing I read was what you said that there's approximately 130 hippos now in that part of Colombia. Well, I just found the one. It doesn't show on Animal Planet when the uh, episode was, but it shows it. it says drug drug kingpin hippos 
Animal Planet's one-hour special Drug Kingpin Hippos explores cocaine king Pablo Escobar's decades-long stronghold on Colombia and the lasting threat his hippos continue to pose to the country today. And that's the other part I wanted to get into. So I did a little bit of research, pulled up a couple uh, articles here. You know, people talked about it. But this, I mean, no less than the Washington Post. So it has to be true, right? But they did a whole series on it. But they said... <laughs> Pablo Escobar's hippos are the world's largest invasive species. I believe it. I believe it. It's, you know, and, and as we're doing our research for today's uh, recording, it's amazing to hear the uh, opposing sides on what to do about this. Because on the one hand, this invasive species now is changing the ecological system in the area where they live. Because you know they primarily live in water, and so their their feces when they're taking a dump is killing the vegetation in the water, which leads to a lack of oxygen, which is killing the fish. So it's changing the ecological system down there. Um, and you, I know a few guys remember. who had that same problem too. I followed them into the bathroom. I think they did the same thing, <laughs> especially when you're out in those base camps. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, yeah, who died so, in here? Oh my God. <laughs> And you got to remember where Colombia's relation is and, and uh, or where its geographic location is on the earth. It's very close to the equator. You know, I think it's r roughly three degrees off the equator. So it's, uh, it's causing a major, major ecological issue down there. But then you look at the opposing parties involved in this. I mean, if it's causing that kind of problems, we can figure out real quick how, you know, because we're not doves, we're hawks. We can figure out how to take care of this issue. You would go down and kill them. Well, the animal rights people, you know, they get involved. And then I started reading articles about some of the people that live there with the hippos, and they're not in favor of getting rid of them. These are not animals that you domesticate and become your puppy dog or your kitty cat. You know, these are very territorial animals who will protect, especially if they have a little one, will protect to do anything that they have to do to protect their, their young, to protect their territories. Now, from all the evidence I can find, there have been no deaths in Colombia from the hippos, but there were reports of three attacks by the hippos on people. One guy was talking about just being out in his boat fishing, and he got too close, and they went over, bumped the boat, dumped him in the water, and he swam for his life. So well, it's, it's just amazing to see, well, then here in the United States, I don't know if you probably have read this, about now the hippos can be recognized as humans. October 26th, 2021, a federal judge ruled <laughs> that drug kingpin Pablo Escobar's hippos can be recognized as people or interested persons with legal rights in the U.S. following a, following a federal court order. Now, so I got, I've got so many questions on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't carry any water or any weight exactly. down in Colombia. You know? Exactly. Now, so however, here's, here's I do want ugly, ugly Americans sticking their nose in again. Uh, well, but here's the other headline I want to read you too, because we talk about how do you control this population now? Well, one way is you kill them, right? And that, mm -hmm. that caused some issues, right? Efforts to castrate hippos are not as easy as you would think. No shit, Sherlock. You try, <laughs> you try holding one of those things still while you pull out a sharp knife and Grab see what legs. happens Grab to you, legs. pal. Javier, <laughs> <laughs> oh, get the other leg. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd like to see how that's. I'd like to see how they're going to do that. Nah, yeah, I know. Yeah, and what I followed, it's very controversial right now. I mean, the, both of y'all are right. What are we going to do? How do we stop them? The animal rights people says no. They're they're part of our they're part of our land now. 
and uh, I mean, I've I know that uh, no names will be mentioned, but I have this friend of mine who was hired when this happened. He was a big safari guy he, uh, down in Colombia to, to shoot one. You know, he's used to safaris, and wow, what I heard afterwards, they people wanted to kill the guy you know for shooting it, and he was authorized by the government. So I think he killed one, and it was just it was mayhem. The guy had to go into hiding. So, uh, but it, it is a big, uh, you know. Uh, what are we going to do with the hippos? I mean, they're they're animals. They have uh, they're part of the environment now. So how do you? And, and I know I, I saw something where they got all sorts of animal people, experts. You know the uh, the scientific people looking at how to stop the herd. Well, well, so a little bit more research, real quick, before you say that. So you you would think a hippo is a pretty good sized animal, right? Oh, so yeah. it takes it takes uh, you know it takes a uh, basically a potent elephant tranquilizer before it was safe to approach it. So how easy do you think it is to find the um, <clears throat> parts? Well, I've read about that too, and they're not external; <laughs> they're internal. <laughs> That's why you have to tranquilize them because you have it's to like cut a through the skin. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So they said it's not that easy. Even if you wanted to castrate them, it's not that easy to find uh, the appropriate plumbing to uh, you know alter the uh, path of the. Uh, um, injection site. Well, and, and too, I remember seeing a, a, uh, a, a documentary, maybe it was Animal Plants, the same show we were on, I'm not sure, but it showed the Colombians going in to try to uh, castrate one of the hippos. And it was a major, major, major operation, and they're bringing in helicopters to relocate the thing so they can work on it. And I forget how many darts they had to shoot into it to finally get it tranquilized. I, it, it was an outrageous operation, and then the it was so heavy that the helicopter they were using to lift it up start the motor started overheating on that. And now you're you know you're risking human lives for this animal. Um, and I'm I'm I love animals. I, I'm not against these guys, but I mean you got to what's more important, a human life or the animal's life? So well, it yeah, depends it, on I'm, who you ask. That's exactly <laughs> right because I'm. I'm reading the. Uh, I got to read this two sentences to you from this uh, local conservationist in Colombia, uh, and she says they make laws from a distance. We live with the hippopotamuses here, and we never even thought of killing them. The hippopotamuses aren't African now; they're Colombians. <laughs> well, but now let me read you a couple sentences. Uh, oh, okay. Whereas most African communities are justifiably leery of hippos. The creatures kill more people annually than any other large mammal. Yep. Their Colombians' neighbors are captivated by them. Gift shops in nearby uh, Puerto Triunfo sell hippo keychains and T-shirts. Yep. So I tell you what'll happen. Nothing, they'll learn. They're not going. They're not gonna, exactly. They're not going to change their minds until a young child or some innocent person is killed by a hippo, and then the first couple they're going to blame it on the people. But then once it, you know. They don't eat meat, so they're not attacking you to eat you. They're not going to just because of hunger. But it's going to, I mean, it's the same thing here in the United States. Something bad has to happen to typically a politician's family member before problems get addressed. Yeah. Well, kind of use an animal analogy. It depends on whose ox is getting gored or whose hippo is, uh, you know, attacking you before you do that. But exactly. it's, but it's one of those things is, let me ask you from the philosophical standpoint, though, too, JP. I mean, Think about this. We have the person who is probably one of the most murderous people on the planets in history. I mean, you'd have to, you could compare him with heads of nations like Stalin and Paul Pot, you know, and, and folks like that. And yet, to this day, 
Pablo Escobar's footprint, in a sense, can still be felt. I mean, his, I hate to call it a legacy, but it's like, how ironic is it that somebody who's been dead for a long time since, uh, what day was that, Murph? December 2nd, 1993. Yeah. So we're going on the 30-year anniversary. We'll be, next year will be the 30th anniversary of that. And yet 30 years later, this guy gets talked about as often as former presidents, you know, or figures in history, Winston Churchill. How, I mean, freaking ironic is that? Yeah. And you know what? We always hear, oh, Pablo Escobar was a Robin Hood, right? And now, I don't know what he's going to be called because he's, his legacy is he brought in the hippos into Colombia. And now the hippos are doing whatever they want to do in Colombia. And like I think Steve has said, the human, the animal people are saying, you know what? They have a right to be here. So that's the legacy. Again, another legacy of Pablo Escobar is his hippos. Who would have thought? I never would have thought that they would have escaped and multiplied like they have right now. You know, when we left Colombia, and I thought, you know, the hippos, oh, they'll be placed in some sort of zoo, uh, you know. We would do the same thing right here in the U.S. if we got a couple of animals. You know, I know some of the traffickers here in the U.S. have bought tigers. And what do they do? They, You know, uh, law enforcement will come in and place them in a zoo. So, But I never realized that the hippos uh, had escaped. And now in the hundreds, and, you know, as we talk right now, they're still multiplying. And they're going to be around. So that's, uh, you know, Pablo Escobar's legacy. Well, and Steve, to add to what you were saying too, I just pulled this up too. This is this is actually they did a 2020. This is as of 2020, they did a study of hippo inhabited lakes and found that the nutrients in the animal species, just what you were saying, were fueling huge blooms of bacteria and algae. These in turn reduced the oxygen content of water, making it toxic to fish. According to one of the experts, they say we saw oxygen levels that were getting to levels where you would expect to see fish to start go belly up. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're concerned that this will affect the fishing industry. So, I mean, you know, kind of one of those questions is that you have something that's been introduced into an area that was not native there. It was never designed to be there. Right. Um, and now uh, Pablo, I mean, Pablo has screwed over Columbia once again. That's, you know what, and that's, uh, we point this out in our presentations and Javier hit the nail on the head there just a second ago. Here's a guy that you know been dead almost 30 years, and he's still causing death and destruction in our world today. You know, did was that in his overall plan when he brought these exotic animals into Columbia? I'm going to guess no, it was. I probably never even gave it a second thought. But that's the point. He never gave a thought about anybody else but himself. I mean, this guy's ego was just uncontrollable. You know, we know about his political career that that didn't last too long. But this is a guy. Two different times offered to pay off the national debt of Colombia. It would have been with narco dollars, and we all know that. But I mean, that's how contr- out of control this guy is. And it's not only in Colombia. We have photographs of narco planes that they flew cocaine up into the Bahama Island chain. They crashed them in the water, got the cocaine off, but they did. You know, they left the the planes still had aviation fuel on there. They still had hydraulic everything. Fluid. Yeah, they had oils. And, you know, we all know salt water fatigues metal and causes it to rust. So, you know, you've got these caustic liquids coming out, killing the reefs and the wildlife down there as well. It just, you know, it's like it has no, there's no end to the destruction he's causing, even all these years later. That's just, and you know what? That's the legacy he needs to have is how murderous he was and continues to cause death in our world today. So let me ask you about a name, see if you guys recognize it. Edgar Jimenez. 
Edgar Jimenez. Doesn't ring a bell. Pablo's personal photographer. So this is the guy that put oh. together a collection of photos. Um, mm -hmm. He was asked, uh, Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar, smiling glass, you know, they've got a picture of him here. But he was asked um, to, the head of the notorious Medellin cartel told Jimenez he was looking for a photographer to create a registry of the giraffes, hippos, elephants, and camels that roamed his private zoo. Jimenez agreed to help. He would end up working as a drug lord's personal family photographer for the better part of a decade, shooting pictures of First Communion weddings and stuff. So that he actually, this Edgar Jimenez went out and actually, that's where a lot of the pictures I think you see come from this dude taking pictures for Pablo. Yeah, I read an article about him not long ago. Yeah, but I, I don't remember him. But, you know, we also took photos and uh, we have uh, we have our own <laughs> photos of Pablo's uh, yep. animals. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, well... But Pablo didn't invite you to his communions and his parties, though. You guys nah, crashed his party. That's why he was oh, mad. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, I saw the other day. I still had a video of uh, Pablo's uh, son at a at a birthday party. Oh man, it's just lavish. It's just uh, you know unbelievable for a young kid to throw a party with smoke uh, filled uh, drinks, uh, bands. I mean, it was just. He'd go all out for parties, and like he did at his ranch, went all out, and now we see the the results. But you know what? If they would have taken care of, you know, here we are, if, right, Monday morning quarterback, but what if the government would have done something as soon as, you know, the animals? Would we still have that problem or not? Well, but you bring up an interesting point, too, because as you do the further research on this and stuff, it is not um, it's not an option. People say, well, just take them back to Africa. Africa doesn't want them. They have no idea what's wrong with them. And they're, they're <laughs> like you were saying, Steve, the reason they didn't reproduce is because these guys are f fighting over puddles of water, you know, and they're, uh, they have some predators too. And so as you get weaker, you get, uh, subjected, you know, you, you become more, um, um, vulnerable to predators. Whereas, as you were saying, JP down there, it's lush, it's lavish, these guys are now, I mean, this is like living on, um, you know, the high life and steak and, you know, everything, you know, seven days a week instead of, you know, little crackers and, you know, olives right. mm -hmm. tossed your way, you know, as party the, the, favors. Right. They're in paradise. They are in paradise. I mean, uh, the food out there, the natural uh, vegetation, the water, the the lush and uh, like that, and like that photo shows, I mean, there's that cement trough. I mean, I don't know, it's, it's got to be... 500 carrots <laughs> who can afford all this food for the animals Pablo Escobar could so he fed them as much as he could and uh, like I said when they when they broke away in that Puerto Triunfo area which you mentioned it's it's very jungle like uh, a lot of water and a lot of vegetation so there they haven't made right now so just out of curiosity I wanted to see how many search results there were for Pablo Escobar hippos Without Googling, Steve, don't check. How many how many search results do you think there are just for that phrase, Pablo Escobar hippos? Oh, it's got to be tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions. Oh, you, you, <laughs> you exaggerate a little bit. <laughs> it's about 300,000, though. Oh, that's all? Yeah, but 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 that's only for that specific phrase, though. So I think if you go look, but but still, three hundred thousand stories that have the word Pablo Escobar and hippos in there, or three hundred thousand links. I mean, again, just think about the enduring legacy that this has left. And I don't say legacy in a nice way. Legacies can be bad, um, but this thing is something that you know, um, you know, he brings them in, he allows them to roam around. 
But I like the why well, I, I don't I don't know if I say like, but some of the headlines called them Pablo Escobar's cocaine hippos. Yeah, you know I've, Pablo's I've heard hippos. That. that is true. They're Pablo's cocaine hippos. I like that term. You know, he brought them in, uh, paid for them with uh, cocaine money, right? Yeah, that boy did. I think he. I just found here the Animal Planet special was on in 2011. And so, but you guys were on that. Of course. Hey, if you made Animal Planet, brother, you made it in the, in the You've movie made world, it. No, right? no wonder they no wonder they signed you up for Narcos. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, they didn't sign you up for Narcos. They had to get real actors. <laughs> Any other impacts from that too? I mean, the hippos seem to be the biggest um, part of that whole animal legacy that he had. Um, did you guys see? I mean, you know, in other words, down there, did you did did they adopt some of those animals out? Did they ship them out while you guys were there? I mean, at some point, you couldn't just sit there and let. If you're trying to run a military base or a, a police base, you couldn't have all these animals running around, could you? No, you, you could not. And I, I just remember that uh, they, they hired, I mean, they kept the workers to feed them. Uh, government was paying for, for the food. But you know what? I am not sure after we left, what, you know, where did the, where did the giraffes go? Where did, where did the elephants go? They, you know, they, they didn't break out. So I'm sure they were placed in some sort of a, a zoo type environment in Colombia. But I think the, because the hippos pretty much, I think, escaped. And at that point, there's like, hey, how do we try to capture one of this? You can't. So I, I, I think that, you know, the other animals were placed in, uh, like I said, uh, animal-type, uh, zoo-type uh, conditions. You know, and, and there's one article that shows a projection. If they don't do anything about it, in eight years, there's projected to be as many as 400 hippos down there. Well, <laughs> let's just wait until the problem gets unattainable, you know, un unsolvable, and then we'll address it. Sounds well, like funny you should mention that too, maybe out of the same article, because as of February of this year, February of 2022, Colombia is set to declare hippos an invasive species, mm -hmm. which means that they will have new authorities. Um, hey, maybe maybe there will be a new manhunt, and maybe it's uh, <laughs> Narcos Animal Planet, and uh, J.P. Murph, you guys can go down there and find out who's the kingpin of the hippos. Uh, there you go. Well, we have to take an elephant gun. I'm afraid if I shoot that, I might break a shoulder. <laughs> Well, hell, you just got back from the doctor getting your eyes dilated. You might not even be able to see the target, even as big as a hippo. Plus, you may you, not come right back now, alive. You may not come back alive on that one, Steve. If you shoot, a no, you're not hippo. kidding, brother. You're not kidding. Those puppies will become meat eaters. Yeah. Oh, you're the two guys that killed our dad. <laughs> We're gonna hunt you down. But here's another interesting thing, though. Too, I found out about the hippos. Why they have natural predators in Africa? They have no natural predators in Colombia, mm -hmm. and that's why, to your point. Uh, you, both of you guys' point, they were allowed to grow and survive and thrive, and their numbers are swelling like that, Steve. I mean, if, if 130 are bad, how bad will 400 be? Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, I got to go back to that. The one point where, you know, an animal rights activist here in the United States got a court to recognize Colombian hippos as people. First of all, what? Why are you sticking your nose in their damn business? I know you're an animal animal rights activist, and you know you're you're worried about what'll happen to the animals. But shouldn't you do that in Colombia, where the legal jurisdiction venue is, not here in the United States, where it just sounds like a freaking joke? You know, and if you read into this, if you read a little bit further into that, it, things like this have been tried before in the United States, and and judges have ruled that it's ludicrous, it's ridiculous. You know, it's invasive to try to compare animals to police uh, to people. It, but here we got one 
federal magistrate judge said, okay, yeah, hippo, yeah, that's the same as my grandchild. Yeah. (laughs) Well, how many grandchildren kill more people each year than uh, lions, hyenas, and crocodiles combined? That's that's their estimates from Africa. And if this document is signed, here's what happens in uh, Colombia. When the document declaring them as an invasive species in Colombia signed, hippopotamuses will join species such as the giant African snail, the koki frog, black t- uh, tilapia, and lionfish. The declaration will allow the government to allocate resources to control the hippo population. One of the main uh, obstacles, but you know what the other obstacle is? They say that uh, hippopotamuses uh, do not have what is called obvious sexual dimorphism. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> that sounds fancy to me. What it means is it's difficult to know if they're male or female because, as you pointed out, Murph, their genitals are internal. Yep. So they're all up and down the Magdalena River. So um, did you go swimming in the Magdalena River at all? Oh, yeah, I've been there, fished uh, in there, but uh, it's a very famous river uh, in Colombia, the Magdalena. Yeah, I flew over it. That's close as I got to it. Well, um, but they said nobody's been killed yet, but yet the attacks are increasing. So one of the people that they interviewed for this article was in a boat, got too near a female, which had just had a, a baby, mm-hmm. got overturned, and another guy— who says, oh, I don't mind the hippos. He was grabbed by one of them, grabbed, <laughs> thrown through the air, busted his hip and his leg. And he's like, oh, I'm fine with that. Like to your point, how long will it be before there are enough hippos down there to where they start attacking people? What about the people who have to fish on the river that can't? What about the fish that can't survive in the river anymore? I mean, this is just, you know, the sad part is, is here again, 30 years later, the dude has been dead. Shocker, mm-hmm. spoiler, if you haven't watched Narcos, Pablo dies. Um, 30 years later, he is still killing things. Yeah. And there's even one of those articles I was reading this and it was talking about that little town. I think it's Puerto Triunfo. Triunfo, Yeah. That's close to the ranch. Talking about occasionally the hippos just come and walk down the street. And when that happens, life stops in that town because nobody wants to get attacked by a hippo. Well, how friendly is that? You know, it just, the, the arguments that are being made, I think are just outrageously ridiculous. Um, but so is our world right now. Right. Bottom line is Colombia has to do something about the hippo problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it comes down. What's more important, a hippo or a human life? Yeah. Well, and that's that's going to be the big thing, right? What are we going to do with them? So um, we just wanted to do just kind of a quick, uh, I'd say quick. It's only going to be about an hour long. It's not going to be like our regular long form. But mm-hmm. this is one of the most interesting things, I think, that is not that well known about Pablo. But, I mean, people talk about it. But we all know about Pablo, but um, so let's just kind of do final takeaways. I mean, because what I want to ask you about is this is the thing that fascinated me about this story. And, and uh, Steve, and I've asked both you and JP this thing. Why is it that 30 years later, we are still talking about Pablo Escobar? <laughs> go ahead, JP. Yeah, go ahead. Well, That's the same you know, question we've had. Yeah, we've asked it. And you know what? And in, in, uh, when we do our shows, everybody has heard of Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar, you know, we've talked about it. You know, we say we hope we dispel that Robin Hood myth. You know, he killed uh, about 50,000 people. But it's something that Pablo Escobar brought to Colombia. I mean, besides the violence, besides uh, the sending of, of dope, besides the terrorism he uh, he accomplished by the downing of the commercial airline, buildings, presidential candidates. But this is something that he created, 
And, you know, when you mentioned Pablo Escobar's hippos, it's he created this and uh, the problem is there and it's going to continue being a problem. And he was brought on by Pablo Escobar. Yeah. And it's, you know, we had the same question, Morgan. In fact, <clears throat> excuse me, when when we first started talking to Eric Newman about the Netflix series Narcos, we turned him down and, and he asked us why. We said, nobody's interested in this guy. You know, and that that was in early 2013 and he was killed in 93. So that was 20 years later. And, you know, maybe we were naive about it, you know. And so we've had discussions with others about that since that time. And they'll say, well, why do people follow Adolf Hitler? Why are they interested in knowing about him? Well, Javier and I, and actually Javier says this at our presentations, when we get up to the introduction, this is a lesson in history. Why? So why do we study history to start with? Well, ostensibly, we study history to learn from our mistakes so that we don't make the same mistakes again, right? But the truth is, we study history and we forget about it. We make the same damn mistakes over and over and over again. So um, I don't have an answer why people are still drawn to Pablo. It's, I don't know, it's it's this myth, this legend that he's created or his family's created or whatever you know, it's for people out there that are anti-government, you know, it's a great story for them. Um, I'll be honest with you, I don't like being told what to do either. I'm I'm a little bit uh, not offended, but if you tell me what to do, I'm probably going to step back and think about it. I'm not going to do it just because you said I have to do it. Oh, so, you do too, Murph. I mean, you're pig-headed. <laughs> you're like, you're, you're, ah, I'm not going to do it that. It could but, be. It could be. But um, so uh, that's why I think that Pablo is so popular still to this day. You know, I get why Elvis is popular. I mean, you know, Elvis, you know, he died young. Marilyn Monroe, same thing. We talk about them. I just have a hard time wrapping my head around why. But, you know, it's the same thing, though. Um, we talk about uh, – we just did a Patreon uh, episode, which is dropping um, a case of the month on Vicki White and uh, Casey White. You know, and mm -hmm. how could – why do women – it, look, I got it. I saw a great meme, but it says women or, you know, here's a public service announcement. You are not going if somebody is inside prison doing time, chances are they are not your soulmate. <laughs> they might be your cellmate. <laughs> cellmate, but they are not your soulmate. Right. And so it is this whole I think mythology. I think part of it is driven by myth. People mm -hmm. enjoy mythology of some type. Joseph Campbell wrote that whole book called The Hero's Journey. They based Star Wars about it, about the hero's journey, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's really broken down. Um, so I think people enjoy this myth. But, you know, I think the biggest, uh, I think, thing out of this that I think, I, I don't want to say it's shameful in that way, but I, but to me it's disheartening, is to your point, Steve, you were talking about, there are a generation of people growing up that don't realize that this guy killed tens of thousands of people, mm -hmm. and yet he is mythologized, if that's a word, into being this larger-than-life person. And when you hear stories about things like Pablo's hippos, it almost just reinforces that because somebody who has no context for what went on that was born, you know, only 20 years ago, they're going to go, oh, that's cool, hippos, that's like exotic, that's wild, man, you know, mm -hmm. and not realizing that um, those hippos, guess what, were, were brought into Colombia um, because of the narco dollars that he was making off of killing, you know, lots of other people. Well, Javier, tell him uh, what's the most popular tourist attraction. Yeah, most popular tourist attraction in Medellin is Pablo Escobar's gravesite. People line up to go see his gravesite. Number one tourist attraction. You know, we've got photographs when he was killed, you know, and his body was in a casket in a funeral home. People 
public broke into the funeral home and paraded his casket out in the street, opened it up and everything. Well, you know what? And I got to admit, I've been to his gravesite too. So <laughs> I'm one of those. <laughs> yeah. You, you just went there to make sure that he was still there. And he didn't escape this. All right. So it's like right. El Chapo. Is he still in ADX Florence? Yes, he is. Yeah. He's not going anywhere. Well, too, right, it's so, like, you know, Morgan, you, you're aware that, that Javi and I get hate mail. Uh, no, Steve, media. you don't get hate mail. You get people who don't clearly understand history. <laughs> apparently, apparently. But, uh, and I guess it just goes with the territory, but, you know, and we don't respond to that crap. But I would, I would love to because I would love to know the ages of the people that are sending it to us because I'm pretty sure most of them weren't even alive when Pablo was killed. And they have no idea of who that is they're trying to support all these years later, a mass murderer. And they do not know what he did. That is a great point, uh, you know, uh, blowing up a commercial airline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, now, Steve, the other thing, too, you did get a piece of hate mail recently where somebody watched Narcos and believed Narcos is totally true, and they got mad at you for what was on Narcos. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Javier, I didn't even tell Javier about it yet. <laughs> Javier, you should, why are you not in prison? You know, you were giving classified information to those puppies. I saw it on TV. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, okay. I still I wrote out a response to that one because it was so ridiculous. And we it's still talked my about draft. that. It's still you my sat, draft. Yeah, you <laughs> sat on that for a while. I mean, it's like, you know, you just need to send them the Ron White picture that said, "Son, there's just no fixing stupid." Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, so, hey, guys, Uh, what we want to do, so this is our celebratory 50th episode of Game of Crimes. This has been a fun ride, you guys. We kicked it off with uh, JP and Murph, and uh, we're kicking off, you know, the next 50 uh, with these guys as well. And hopefully you guys have enjoyed this. This one's not going to be like our traditional where we went in depth, mm -hmm. but we thought we would take a topic, a lot of fascination around Pablo's hippos. And uh, let me just final thoughts from you guys, too. Now, you know, like, Murph, we're about a year into this, but you guys have been doing your um, presentations now for, what, six years now, going on seven years, I think, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you're, seventh. Yeah. And, I mean, just, I mean, what's the what's the one big lesson if there is, like, Pablo's hippos will be a lesson Columbia is going to have to learn the hard way, once again, is that you cannot allow this kind of stuff to happen. But for you, uh, let's, let's, with you, what's the one big lesson uh, everybody needs to learn uh, even 30 years later about Pablo Escobar, the hippos, everything else, if there was a key lesson in history, what is it? Because you were saying it's a history lesson. Well, for me, it's, you know, we want the world to know the truth because there's there's so many others out there speaking about it that are not speaking the truth. They're speaking theories. They're speaking, uh, trying to change the legacy of a family member, that type thing. Um, what we've learned is there's still a massive interest in it um, from around the world. We get we get messages weekly from people around the world. When are you going to bring the show here? When are you going to come back to the UK? Um, which, you know, I mean, we love doing that. But the whole purpose of doing that is to tell the truth. And the other thing is part of that truth is we want the world to know who the true heroes are. And Javi and I, we, we, we mention this in every interview we do, in every presentation we do on stage. Whatever opportunity we have is to discuss who the true heroes are from that entire investigation down there at Manhunt. Because, you know, here in the United States, people will meet us, especially when we do interviews, and they're like, you guys are true American heroes. No, we're not. We were a couple of, of professional law enforcement officers who got to work a really big case that eventually got blown out of proportion by the Netflix series Narcos. But what we want the world to know is who the real heroes are, and that's the Colombian National Police because they fight, they died, over a thousand police officers killed in this in one investigation. 
and they took their country back from this guy. That's the thing I want everybody to remember. That's the takeaway I want you to remember from this. Yeah. Yep. And as for me, you know what? The hippos, it's not their problem. They're animals. They're they're living. They're vegetating. They're reproducing. It was who brought them there, you know, uh, Pablo Escobar. But and now it's, you know, it's uh, their problem. And uh, you know what? The country of Colombia has to find solutions uh, to this problem. You know, we all respect animals. They're, you know, they're they're living. They're doing what hippos are are doing. They were brought by Pablo Escobar, and no one, I hate to say, it, nobody uh, tried to uh, solve this situation. And now we'll look at uh, what uh, they're in for right now. You know what? And and when we talk about Pablo, he was the world's first narco terrorist. You know, and, and people say, what's a narco-terrorist? Well, it's basically a narcotics trafficker that employs terroristic activities in his criminal activities, right? So that's pretty simple. Well, now he gets a new title. Now he's an, he's an eco-terrorist. He's an eco-terrorist, yeah. to the ecological system in that part of Colombia. And you know what? Um, I have a prediction is that they will not solve this. And unfortunately, it will be one of those things. Nature will have to figure out how to do this because I doubt governments can figure out an effective way to take care of this. So... There yeah. we are. So let's bring this episode <laughs> to an end. So again, um, I get to turn the tables, get to interview JP and Murph. And yes, we will all be together. Um, this is going to come out on a Monday. This uh, will come out on Monday. What is it? The uh, 23rd. And then the following uh, week, we are all going to be together for at least a couple, three days uh, down in San Diego at the Southern California Game Conquerors. Congress, conference, Congress, politicians, conference where we will be collecting more stories. And maybe we will get, maybe there won't be Pablo's hippos, but maybe it'll be Steve's turtles, ah, Steve's alligators. You know, we we want to hear about the alligators, you know, and uh, JP, we don't know what it is, but it, it involves Aguardiente. Argua so whatever it is. <laughs> hey, I, and I just want to say, it's it's a real honor and pleasure to have uh, have Javier back on the show with us Thank here. Thank you guys. You know, he it's helped been... us get this kicked off, and here we are, right. almost a year later. It's been fun, glad, guys. Glad to have you back, brother. And we'll see and each other. And if you guys want to hear weeks. the real, yeah, and if you guys want to hear the real in-depth story, guess what? Uh, time to pimp it out. Patreon.com/slash Game of Crimes, the real DEA narcos talking about the real DEA narcos. Twelve episodes where we provide the most in-depth analysis of the capture and uh, the manhunt, capture and killing of Pablo Escobar, including. Javier sleeping in Pablo's bed at Lakata Drow, staring at the ceiling, wondering, <laughs> I wonder what kind of sex room is in Lakata Drow. <laughs> why, is this, why isn't there a sex wing here? There was one in his ranch. <laughs> and on that note, everybody stay tuned for the debrief. Uh, thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>